Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Comics Collective, the weekly podcast where we read and discuss a collection of comic books or a graphic novel. I am your host, Dallas. I'm Alexis. I'm Anne. And for today's episode, the first of our month-long X-Men episodes, we have a very special guest. We have the host of Cerebro, the X-Men podcast, Connor Goldsmith. Hi, Connor. Hi, Dallas. How are you? And hi, Alexis and Anne also, obviously. It's nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. We're super excited. Big fans of your show here on the podcast. Well, thank you so much. That's really flattering. I uh, Actually, I think we met at New York Comic Con, right? Yes. Because you were wearing my merch. And yes. that was <laughs> insane to me because I had never... So I had like... Because I started the show... September 2020, right? Like in the mm-hmm. real heart of the lockdowns. And so the idea that, like, I knew that people were listening to the show because it was just getting bigger every week, which was wild. But like, they, you were all people in my phone. Like, you weren't <laughs> real people that I could interact with. And then I went to New York Comic Con and, uh, and I saw at least five people in, Zaladin t-shirts which really shocked me chris claremont was confused he was like what's with the Zaladin t-shirts <laughs> because he didn't think anybody cared about Zaladin. i was like here's the thing chris <laughs> only i care about Zaladin, and uh unfortunately for you people are gonna ask you about her because they listen to my podcast we actually we had a great 45 minute conversation me and chris where he was just like very crotchety about everything in the way that he does um but it was it was charming. I convinced him to read the new Excalibur. That is good. Yeah. I mean, well, he was excited that it was a woman writing the character. Mm-hmm. He thought that was cool. So that is really cool. I mean, and as far as everyone knows, how much you love the Claremont run, and so obviously we had to pull you on to talk about Grant Morrison's new X Men. Mm, well, that's my second favorite. So mm-hmm. this was a good. I mean, when you said it, I was like absolutely like i would say the claremont and then claremont simonson period from like 75 to 91 is the peak for me my favorite stuff particularly in the 80s but then i think grant is number two for sure uh mm-hmm. one of my most prized possessions is a new x-men omnibus that grant signed for me years ago at new york comic-con uh i'm a huge huge grant morrison fan their work is very important to me and i was reading this as it came out when I was in high school. So it was like a very, if you're in high school in New York and 9-11 has literally just happened and Genosha has literally just happened in the comic and everybody's dealing with sort of all of it at once. It was a very, like I remember what it felt like to get a new issue of this every month in a way that a lot of comics don't stick with me in my head that way month to month. you know, after Morrison, I would say that I love the Mike Carey run, but I read that more recently because I fell off after the decimation for a while, was not crazy about the decimation. Uh, and then now I think, you know, it, it's not, people call it like Hickman's X-Men, but I really think it's the team. I think that what he did that was so innovative and different was assemble a group that works together as such an incredible unit. I don't think the line has been this strong 
across the board since Claremont and Simonson and Nascenti were doing it. And that was two writers and what, four books, five at most. Mm -hmm. So this is 15 books and 10, 12 writers. You know, it's a, it's a lot. And I'm very impressed with what they've accomplished. But Morrison, I think, is what saved the franchise. Because I think that without new X-Men, this doesn't, continue i I think it just would have died on the vine absolutely so ann and alexis what are your thoughts about your read through of new x-men before we hop all the way into it i did send a text that said this is the good grant (laughs) grant all the good grant baby (laughs) what's the bad what's the bad grant There, it, there's an ongoing debate on this podcast where I too am a huge Grant Morrison fan. They're my favorite comic book writer. I'm not saying they're all bangers. Like everybody has a miss <laughs> now and then. Like I don't, I don't love Grant on Wonder Woman. I'll say that. But okay. like, you know, I, I'm like, but not because I don't. It was interesting. I was just sort of like not quite working for me, as opposed to like All Star Superman or other. It depends on the character sometimes yeah. for me with Grant. Yeah. But what's the bad Grant? What are we referring to? Because I, I haven't. Go for it, Lex. I was gonna say I almost quit this podcast over Doom Patrol, but that's just because <laughs> which it was broke a my lot. heart. Which it broke my lot. heart. That's the best Grant. That's <laughs> <laughs> the best one. When. I was reading their panel by panel interview. My, look, look at my Doom Patrol omnibus. Which is also <laughs> sitting right there on the. It's so good. Yeesh. When I when I found you out the Animal Man, she hasn't read Animal Man. Okay, yet. make her read Animal Man. I was going to say I am an infant when it comes to comics. That's I okay. Reading comics everybody starts. Dallas needed a partner for this podcast. Okay, so. everybody starts in 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 their own place at their own pace, mm-hmm. but. Man, that's that's uh, that's that's a, a take that is a take one can have. I suppose. That's, that's I'm what gonna, I'm here for. I'm just wild takes. Just spit them out. That's I'm a bold one. Lexi up for a second. It took me a while to get into Grant Morrison. When I take some time. Listen, Grant is polarizing. Not everyone loves Grant, and Grant's mm-hmm. work is very. Different. Grant's like doing chaos magic and drugs while yeah. they're writing this stuff. So mm-hmm. it's like there's definitely a, a certain level of like third eye open you need to be <laughs> willing to allow or do in order to – I sort of see Grant and Alan Moore as kind of two sides of a coin in that way, which is funny because, of course, they have such a rivalry between them. But, right. you know, uh, the third – person like that in the period was the person who followed up uh, Grant mm-hmm. on Doom Patrol, which is Rachel Pollock, who is also just like a mystical lady at the end of the day. Um, but yeah, well, what, did, what didn't you like about Doom Patrol? I'm sorry. We sh- this is not a Doom Patrol <laughs> podcast. I'm sorry. Like, it is. <laughs> I feel so validated now, though, no, because I, I've had him. to be on the Doom Patrol hill for so long. But I, too, want to hear her tell someone else. I well, literally like feel that. like I had to be on drugs to understand what was happening in my comic book. Oh, I'm well, that's, sorry. That's not wrong. But if you're here in California. <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> like I live just... in Layton, Utah. Okay. Oh. It was mm. a little out there. <laughs> okay. We were talking about time zones before we started recording. And I I just assumed. I'm sorry. I didn't mean. Nope. Utah. Yep. Good Love that for Utah. you. Uh, well, in that case. <laughs> 
Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. I do love. I have seen them in the wild, and they are something. I have Meredith Marks, my queen. They are, I love her. Sure. The one I can imitate though is Lisa Barlow. I've done that in the show a couple times because because she's from Long Island. It's easy for me because I'm from New York. Um, but yeah, no. But, but what didn't? Well, okay. Well, so here's what I'll say. Uh, don't make her read Animal Man. Make her read Seven Soldiers. Deal. Because I feel like that is like you do need to go a little galaxy brain, but it's not quite like, let's go hang out with Danny the street. Like it's, you know what I mean? Like it's see, I feel like it would have been okay if he had given me context of what to expect. He just threw me into the freaking. Oh, well that's rude. That's the context is that doom patrol was never a particularly good comic. Don't yell at me listeners. And then Grant Morrison made it a really, really good comic by just saying, what if it was completely insane? And then it was, it didn't make any sense anyway. Well, I did. You just need to. You'll get there. <laughs> Maybe a reread. Yeah. I feel about Grant Morrison's new X Men. So, oh, but you liked this. Okay. I did. Okay, good. I'm glad. Very, if you I didn't like E is for good. Extinction, I, I would be like, we need to stop <laughs> recording. Because I, well, no, because I don't know what I would say. I would just be like, mm. um, no, but now I'm a little sad we didn't read all the way through to Planet X and Here Comes Tomorrow because I'd love <laughs> to hear her take on Here Comes Tomorrow, which is fully bug fucking insane Grant Morrison kind it of was, shit. It was my first. Uh, so I read New X-Men pretty early in comics and Planet X, all of that, Here Comes Tomorrow was my first like I got, I got nothing but vibes, but I liked the vibes. Here Comes Tomorrow is pure vibe. There is no because here's the thing actually about Here Comes Tomorrow. It was supposed to be 10 issues. And Grant and Casada were fighting so much that Grant quit early and cut it down into like four. So it is enormously confusing because it's like, let's do all this world building of a timeline that, by the way, I'm going to erase at the end of the story. So none of it actually matters, except insofar as it thematically ties up everything I've done for the last 40 issues. Um but yeah, no, that's a confusing one. I, I mean, when I read Here Comes Tomorrow as a, what was that, 2005? 2004, 2004? Yeah. yeah, so I'm like 15, 16. I, yeah, I, I was not, I did not get it. I did get that Ernst was Cassandra Nova. So all of the writers who didn't get that have Better. no excuse. I was 15 fucking years old. Read the comic. <laughs> but whatever, it's fine. Um <laughs> Anyway, uh, but we're not here to talk about Here Comes Tomorrow. I'm sorry, I'm getting you so off track. This is why my podcast runs like three, four fucking hours every week. Um, so can I swear on this show? You can. I didn't you can. Ask. We I are a swearing podcast. Absolutely. Okay, great. My Solid. mom loves to bring it up that we do. She's okay. going to go to hell. Because the, the first time I was on Battle of the Atom, Zach and Adam had to bleep out like 10 things <laughs> one of them was tits and i was like i can, you can say that on network television i can't say tits it's an emma frost episode I, like i mean seemed... how do you not say tits i know so then when i came back for an episode about Silak and revanche i was like am i allowed to say ass because if i can't say ass when we're talking about ninja Psylocke comics i'm gonna be in a lot of trouble right so that one they just put a, like a parental advisory at the beginning of the episode where they were like just so you know our guest swears a lot this episode and i was like love that love that for me you come with a parental You're warning like, i am the villain thank you i am <laughs> um, well i like to think of myself as much like emma someone who 
walks in and says, this is going to be my way now. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes the genes of the world have a problem with that, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh, I love it. Anne, what did you think of New X-Men? Okay, so this was a run I was looking forward to to diving back into because it's one of the Grant Morrison books for me where it's like the first time through, it's completely, I have no idea what's going on. Mm-hmm. But the second time through, it's like, okay, I'm picking up the pieces now. I understand more. It's making sense to me. I'm liking it. And I was really glad we got to do this with um, Connor because it was actually your episode on Emma Frost and specifically talking about her role in this story that made me a huge Emma Frost fan because before oh my god yeah. that makes me so happy yeah you completely converted me she is definitely my favorite now and it's just I never looked at like her because I was always like looking at her from the perspective of like oh she's just another character is being like overly sexualized but mm-hmm. then you point out it's like oh no this is actually she's written in a way I, I never looked at it from like a queer perspective before right yeah so I was like I took her from that angle and I read her in Grant's run and I was like, oh wait, I can actually see this. This is actually really, really cool. She's just someone who just knows her moment, owns her moment and takes it. And I love that so much. And reading through this is just, it's perfection. I like it a lot. The first three issues, especially just everything that happens with um, Genosha, the first first encounters with Cassandra Nova, it's just breathtaking and thrilling to no end. And I think it loses me a little bit in the middle with some of the Shiara stuff, but it there's was, yeah, it, Imperial yeah. is Imperial mm-hmm. and uh, the Weapon Plus arc later on are I mm-hmm. think the two points where it kind of dips a little. Um, Imperial also was when the comic was so rushed yeah. that Igor Cordy has to sub in, and people are really mean about his art in that arc. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it's actually pretty good. The thing that I always point to is people always share that one splash page of Emma like reclining in the chair as though it's like the worst art ever. But Mm -hmm. Emma's supposed to look gross there. Like she's being gross in that, (laughs) like, you know, it's supposed to be so sexual that it's disgusting. Yeah. Um, But anyway, the point is I've seen Igor Cordy do lots of stuff when he wasn't like, you need to turn around this issue in two weeks and it looks a lot better than this so i always feel the need to it was like fill-ins on a real tight schedule but i i would agree i think that the shiar stuff is where grant gets a little too granty in the Mm -hmm. sense that when grant goes cosmic it starts to get very very heady in a way that i think Otherwise, New X-Men for a Grant Morrison comic is pretty grounded. Um, So I do think that that's kind of off a little bit. And then the Weapon Plus stuff is also like all the stuff with the world and everything is also Mm -hmm. a little bit more like this is Grant writing about technology and, you know, in a way that is a little more uh, like, I mean, you know, Phantom X kind of typifies that whole thing it's like phantom x is a joke but also is actually a character that you have to take seriously in the comics so what do you do with that and that's very morrisonian is sort of these characters who are symbols or like meta theatrical signifiers but they also exist in the narrative so you have to analyze them also as characters cassandra nova and john sublime in these stories being sort of the two main ones here um, but that I'm a, oh, it makes me so happy to hear that. I, I love when when people get a new appreciation for a character, and I I love Emma. Um, yeah, 
Because genuinely, when I started listening to your podcast back during quarantine, I still felt like I was really new to X-Men. Like, I've known mm-hmm. the X-Men for forever, but they've just been so... Their history is so inundated with a lot of just frankly bullshit that it took me. Oh, it's, there's a lot of stuff you don't have to worry about. Yeah, I mean that's sort of the whole premise of my show is like mm-hmm. everyone I know going Connor. It's cool that you know so much about the X Men, but I don't understand anything about the X Men. So let's please stop talking about the X Men. I'm like, well, I'm going to catch you all up on everything that's ever happened in the X Men, so that then I can have an audience I can talk to about the X Men right. forever. And you're all trapped with me now because now you can't stop thinking about this plot dangler that Claremont left in 1987 that has kept me awake nights my whole life. You yeah, know, so. honestly, brilliant strategy. It's working. So yeah, I was like, you're all, now you're all trapped in here with me is sort of the, you know, hope you survive the experience. Fingers crossed. I love that. So do we want to have a little bit of a conversation about Emma Frost? Because like, Emma Frost is my favorite X-Man. I feel like she's the main character of the portion that we read. She's the main character, I would argue, of New she's X-Men. She's always. She's um, the X-Men I mean, main character. Because, exactly. well, but she wasn't until this book. I mean, mm-hmm. that's what's so interesting about it. It was Grant who made Emma my favorite character. Because my favorite character when I was a kid, I mean, I loved Storm because every gay boy loves Storm. But my favorite character as a kid reading my da- my dad's comics was Betsy Braddock. And... I was very turned off, though, by the hypersexualized ninja Psylocke weirdness of the 90s when I was like that was actually coming out when I was a kid. So my love for Betsy was always kind of complicated. And then when New X-Men launched, Grant's version of Emma was very much like the Betsy of the 80s a telepath who was not telekinetic, who had to be sneaky, who was very funny and clever, and also was the member of the team who was morally more willing to bend in a way that made the other characters uncomfortable. And so that keyed me back in like, okay, this is now a character I really love. Whereas as the white queen, she had never been that remarkable to me as a villain. Um, You know, she was fun, but like Mm -hmm. it was, it was kind of, I don't think Claremont's Emma is particularly fascinating as a character because she's very, what you see is what you get, right? Mm -hmm. Um, What I don't think I quite realized then, I mean, you know, it was impossible for me not to read this book queerly because it was my life that I was having, right? But... Uh, I didn't know anything about Grant Morrison. This was my first Grant Morrison comic, and I didn't know anything about Grant as a person when I read it. And, you know, Grant now uses they, them pronouns. That's a very recent development. But even back then, Grant was always very public about having sometimes presented female in their personal life and wrote a lot of gender non-conforming characters in their work. I didn't know all of that when I read this, but for me, and I realize this is, you know, not something that's canon or whatever, but I cannot read Morrison's Emma as anything other than a trans woman. Um, I think that it's 100% what the story is about in a lot of ways. Uh, And the theme of gender and the performance of gender is constant throughout this run. Quentin Quire's whole complex is about his threatened 
masculinity and the way that he feels like he should be the alpha male and all of that stuff. Cassandra Nova, the iconic villain of the Morrison run, is Charles Xavier's female self, right? Like, so there's just a lot of gender play throughout. And um, Emma, I think, is the character who drives that theme home by commenting on it so overtly. She's always, by the mere fact that she's walking around in those outfits, she's forcing you to confront the weird sexualized genre that she's existing in. She is making you think about the way female characters are written. She, the the whole driving personal character relationship of this run, I would argue is not Scott and Emma or Scott and Jean. It's Jean and Emma as parallel characters to each other. And the way that Jean as the good girl, who's not so good, and Emma as the bad girl, who's not so bad, are juxtaposed is sort of, to me, the core of the story all the way through to the end when Jean realizes that Emma is the answer for the future of the mutant race. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I just fucking love this comic and I love Emma Frost. <laughs> um, Betsy's back on top now because once they finally undid the really racially strange plot that they did for 30 years with her, uh, I opened my heart again and I just really, really love how um, my friend Teeny Howard is writing her in uh in the contemporary books. So she's back. She's back and, and better than ever. I'm also big on Storm again, who kind of fell off for a long time for me as a character, but they're doing great stuff with her now. Uh, and Emma is just still at her very best. But I do think, while I would put Duggan at this point at number two, there has never been a writer on Morrison, uh, 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 rather, <laughs> look, look at Freudian slip. There has never been a writer on Emma Frost quite so perfect as grant morrison it feels like they had a real connection and that's something grant i'm sure would agree with because grant would be like oh it's like this mystical whatever you know like that's exactly the kind of thing that grant believes in so absolutely i it was interesting reading this being a big emma fan being like oh yeah this is this is straight straight to the veins emma a little bit Mm -hmm. because i was just reading um just right on the tail of this, we're going to be talking to Kieran Gillen next uh, week. And so reading a lot of Utopia X-Men, yes, I kept being like, I don't love, like, I didn't love Fractions, Emma. I, I didn't like Fractions, Emma at all. And I, I mean, I love Matt Fraction, but his mm-hmm. X-Men's just not my favorite. Same. Uh, but one of the reasons his X-Men isn't my favorite is specifically, this is why I also don't like Bendis on X-Men particularly, is because I didn't like his Emma. And for me, if Emma isn't, if Emma doesn't hit right for me, it's hard for me to like enjoy the rest of it, which is that's just goes to show that these stories are so subjective. Right. Cause I'm not saying that any of those comics are bad, but it is a, a barrier for me. I think sometimes Emma's like a litmus test for how women are going to be treated in the comic in general. 100%. That if a, Look at Joss Whedon. Yeah. If, yeah. if a character, I mean, let's not, but you know, <laughs> I was ahead of the curve on fucking hating that run, by the way. I just, I want credit. Because <laughs> people looked at me like I was saying that I didn't like Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol when I would say that I didn't like <laughs> Astonishing X-Men. And I was always right. It is not a good comic. Anyway, I'm sorry. Please continue. No, you're good. I, I just think if a, 
if a person can't get down with who Emma is as a person, I feel like it bleeds out into the other female characters that they're writing. If you think Emma is an evil whore, it says something about what you think about women generally mm-hmm. is just sort of the bottom line. And I just always check out pretty quick. Like if you can't at least like, I'm not saying she's a perfect person, yeah. but if you don't at least, like Kieran is actually a great example because Kieran's Emma, you know, at the time there was definitely an editorial push to make Scott and Emma wrong in the wake of the schism, which I simply don't agree with. And the Krakoa era, I think has borne out that Scott and Emma's philosophy was completely correct. Um, But Kieran, despite that made them very human in a way Mm -hmm. that I think um, made sense. Like I like how Kieran is. I'm, I'm just, I'm so excited that Kieran is now getting to write Emma in a better circumstance because Utopia was just not a particularly fruitful setting for anyone to be writing stories in. The Decimation, we've got like five characters and they all have to sit in this one set that we have. And it's just, you know, I think that if Mike Carey and Kieran Gillen had been writing, I mean, Zeb Wells does incredible work on New Mutants in that period, but it's not as good as Hellions. I'll tell you that for free. I mean, and it's pretty fucking good, but like seeing these same creators who I love so much now get to play with the X-Men in a much more open playground has been really invigorating. Also, I'm excited to hear your interview with Kieran. I'm a, I'm launching season three of Cerebro with Kieran, which I'm excited about. That's going to be so fun. Uh, He's a great guy. I've known him for like 10 years. I am very excited. That's awesome. Lexi, what did you think about Emma? All I have to say off the top is Emma is the definition of camp. If she could have been invited to the real Met Gala, she would have made all them bitches cry because her outfits and her just all like the specific part where she fully killed a man because he messed up her nose job made me laugh for a good two hours. I was like, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You tell him how much that was, and you drop him off that building. Good that for you. That was very expensive plastic surgery. Mm-hmm. Twenty grand out the drain, and I was like, mm-hmm. "Yes, mm-hmm. go off, queen." And that is something Grant added to the character. I mean, the thing that the the reason Emma hadn't really like inspired me that much until this run was because she's like a fun bad guy in the '80s stuff when she's around, but um, in the '90s she was the like school marm of gen x and i found her super boring and i know that there are a lot of people who i mean i was still like okay she's like a fun kind of amoral telepath like that part was fun but it felt to me like she's a good guy now was never as complicated as i wanted it to be and what i love about new x-men is that it's very clear that even though this woman's been off in Massachusetts working for Charles Xavier since 1993, none of these people trust her whatsoever. Certainly not Jean, who, to be fair, has reason not to trust her, yeah. given the dark phoenix of it all. But uh, specific, specifically what I like is the way that she immediately presents a new political position in the context of 
X-Men, she challenges Jean and Xavier's liberalism. She calls it ex-liberalism explicitly uh, and is just sort of like, great, cool. I just survived a genocide of 16 million of our people. Like, what are you going to do about it, you dumb <laughs> centrist idiots? Like that, you know, and mm -hmm. it's different, though, from the sort of supremacist ideals that Magneto had historically represented within that frame again that Quentin Quire through his very flanderized interpretation of Magneto comes to represent in Riot at Xavier's. I like that a lot. I I feel like she she gets to be more biting in this room. Oh yeah. Well I mean Grant also gives her the mid-Atlantic accent. Like he he they they go out of their way to give Emma all of the best lines. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I this this run is so full of good one-liners. Was my big takeaway on this reread. The like mm -hmm. the it's dialogue, very funny. The dialogue just sings and I felt like every single panel was something that I wanted to pull out and show somebody. Like isn't this the funniest thing you've ever seen? Well, and it's Emma who sort of says the big thing about the whole run, right? Which is that line the whole world is watching us now. We must be nothing less than fabulous. And she says that because the whole world now knows that Xavier's is a home for mutants in the story. Mm -hmm. But it's also Grant Morrison saying, I understand that I'm walking a tightrope here. Trust me, let's like do this. It's going to be good. I promise I'm going to do my best. Um, and it sticks the landing. Like there are bits and pieces of it that don't always work uh, 20 years later with hindsight. But I think that for the most part, I mean, it's still one of the first things I recommend people read if they want to get into mm -hmm. the X-Men. Well, I think it's, it's accessible in a way that a lot of other things. And that are. was the point of it. Yeah. Yeah. Because Chris Claremont writes this magnum opus on the characters that it's 17 years long though. Ultimately, yeah, right. Like, it's, it's a, a it's a sixteen year. I guess maybe seven. I'm not good at it's seventy five to ninety one. So, I yeah six. 16. He says he says seventeen, but I'm always like Chris. I don't. <laughs> Your math isn't mathing. Chris. I'm not right. But um, so I uh, whatever. Regardless, more years than any other writer ever spent on a comic book at this level of the market. It was the number one book in the world in terms of Western comic books for many of those years. And it had been a failure when he started and he did it for a generation. And that's crazy. So afterward, it was really hard to follow that up. And after the book tanked toward the end of the nineties, they tried to bring him back and it just didn't quite work. So if that's not going to work, then you really have to do something drastic, right? Yeah. And I, I feel like what Grant did was take these characters that I personally had met in the movies mm -hmm. and say- oh, One year before this run is yeah. that movie. Yeah. And they say, here are the characters that you like. I'm going to tell a story that you don't need anything beyond liking these characters to mm -hmm. like. And I feel like it's it's something of a two-edged sword in X-Men comics where they are so beholden to that Claremont run and the continuity established there that if you know that, it's very enriching. But if you don't, it can feel it's very Byzantine and overcomplicated, yeah. Um, I mean, 
when Grant's run first started, when I was 13 or whatever, I was resistant to it at first because it felt like it disregarded a lot of things about the classic continuity because that's Grant's approach. Grant's approach has always been, and I did, again, this was my first Grant Morrison copy, I didn't know this, but Grant's feeling is if continuity, old continuity doesn't serve your current story, then throw it out. Who cares? And that was not the way that like my obsessive compulsive nerd brain worked. So I was very resistant to it at first. It took a while for me to warm up to it, but even when I was perturbed by that, this first storyline is such a gauntlet throne that there's no way I was going to stop reading it. Like, you need to know what happens. You know, I mean, the first issue is mostly just Cassandra Nova doing evil shit that you don't know what it's going to be yet. And you're still like, well, I need to know what this lady's up to, so I got to read the next issue. Like, it grabs you and it does not let you go at all. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> there's so much in this run that stuck out to me. I think the biggest thing that stuck out to me this run, thinking specifically about Emma, but also about Jean, is there was not a lot of moments in 2000s Marvel comics where female characters got to have those big moments of power mm -hmm. or those big moments in the spotlight. Usually, and it got kind of worse towards the, the middle of the decade and it would eventually write itself out towards the 2010s, but mostly in most of the comics I've read, women were there to be the sexual objects. They're there to look nice, not do a lot of things, be saved occasionally, and that's about it. But you look at this comic, and all the big moments in this comic are either from Emma or Jean. All the big um, moments in battle are from Jean. I remember the epic moment where the people are coming from the U-Men to like yeah. basically collect, collect and harvest all their organs, and she literally makes them shit their pants. <laughs> and that was... Um, Single-handedly defeats them, and also... Mm -hmm. Her hair starts going. That's when oh, I yeah. sat bolt mm -hmm. upright, right? Like as like a teenager, I was like, oh shit, shit. we're doing this. You know, like we're yeah. doing the Phoenix. Mm -hmm. And to me, the greatest triumph of the Morrison run is what they do with Jean. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, Emma is my favorite thing, but this is to me the best Jean Grey story, New X-Men, full stop. Um, I have a complicated relationship with Jean Grey. Uh, I love Jean from the 60s up through Dark Phoenix. Mm -hmm. And then I think that 80s Jean is interesting, but to me, uh, kind of dreadful, but in like a fun way to read at least. 90s Jean to me though, is exactly what you're saying. Like she's just kind of furniture a lot yeah. of the time. And Morrison fixes the Phoenix. Like that story had gotten so screwed up by the big X factor retcon in 86 that said that Jean wasn't really Phoenix. And so for Grant Morrison to say, that's ridiculous, like <laughs> Jean Grey is Phoenix, we're just gonna do this plot, go through, do the whole thing, and then spoiler alert for Lexi, I'm sorry, kill her at the end, like for real, the, and have her become a god the way that the whole story should have gone in the 80s. Mm -hmm. Perfect. I mean, to me, it's, Personally, I would never have brought her back ever again after New X-Men. Um, I think it's fine that she's back now, like, uh, I, but it would never have been my choice. I think it's exactly what needed to be done with the character. And to me, I mean, listen, I'd love to be wrong, but to me, no one will ever do a story as 
interesting or meaningful with that character as this one. I haven't seen it yet in any case. I, it's, it's hard because I actually haven't read through the White Hot Room stuff yet. So I haven't finished mm. the, don't, don't make that face at me, Dallas. You, you should know this. I have so much to do. <laughs> um, so I'm very excited to get to the end of this run specifically for that. Because yeah. everything, I, the first time I read through this, Emma stuck out to me. This time through, Jean stuck out to me a lot. And it was just something I really, really appreciated because this was a time where those characters didn't really get that spotlight. And it made me really happy to see that characters like Cyclops and Wolverine didn't get to the point of overshadowing that they'd often get to in later years. No, especially Wolverine after the popularity in this run is a supporting character, which yeah. is astounding. And that's my favorite way of using Wolverine. He works best, I think, as a supporting character. Mm -hmm. So it's nice in this run, honestly. I think my personal favorite Wolverine is Leather Overalls Growling with Beast Wolverine that we read in <laughs> issue 126. I was like, look at that little yeah. man. Look mm -hmm. at him go. Just a hairy little guy. Oh, it's one of the best designs on him ever, also. I mean, the new X-Men uniforms are killer. Can we talk a little bit about the Quietly redesigns? Sure, Because yeah. I did not know they were as maligned as they were until... Oh, everybody hated them. I said on Twitter, I was like, what do we think of these designs? Thinking, slam dunk. Everyone's right. going to love these like I do. They do not. They no, they really, don't. really don't. And I, I don't get it. So I want to hear from you three what you think about these redesigns because well, i've talked brilliant. a lot so why don't you go first <laughs> lexi I, I was gonna say i do have to comment on jean on jeans low-rise jeans if those ever come back i will literally <laughs> jump off a cliff that, unfortunately it was <laughs> 2001 it was. and so yes exactly. the jeans are low-rise the platforms are chunky oh, the pigtails are out there are a couple fashion <laughs> elements to these it designs that are good Yes, impossible. Well, the to me, the worst is the pigtails that Gina yeah, Emma do sometimes. That's just very much. It's two thousand one, and we're doing a chunky pigtail moment, and mm -hmm. it's not. It's not good. But, it was giving Lexi in sixth grade. We're good. Yeah, it's just not the <laughs> not the vibe. Um, but I but I also think this is apart from Phoenix, which they won't let her wear for plot reasons. I think this is Jean's best look ever when she mm -hmm. has the ribbed yeah. turtleneck with that the X hard. on it and then the trench, especially mm -hmm. over it. Those moments, like with the U-Men, when she's just like, I'm the Phoenix now and her trench is like going big. Yep, yeah, that that's one. some good fucking shit right there. Mm -hmm. uh, and I love the way that Jean as very covered up and all in black contrasts Emma mostly nude all in white mm -hmm. um my favorite bit about the quietly designs and i think this was grant's idea because if you go to the manifesto that's been published like like grant's pitch document has been published in in collections uh and if you go to that there are some sketches that grant did of like envisioning the costumes and i believe it's it's grant sketches but maybe it was grant and frank working it out together but uh emma's costume is worn backwards it is supposed to be backless and it's like an X that's backless, but Emma looked at it and was like, mm, no, and turned it around and decided to wear it so that it was titless. Like, she's just, like, my you know, could make this work. Yeah. She's like this, you know what this look needs? My big honking expensive titties. Mm -hmm. um, and she's right. I mean, she's absolutely right. The, the way that, 
it drew on the slicker aesthetic of the movie without being boring in the way mm-hmm. that the movie costumes yep. are. And also, like, because the use of yellow throughout it makes it visually look like X-Men, which is helpful. But also, each character's version of it is different. So it's not just we're all in the same black cat suit with, like, a different color piping, which is why the Fox movie costumes are so boring. Like, the fact that Logan wears his with just a wife beater under the jacket and that Scott, meanwhile, is wearing this very buttoned-up kind of thing or that Gene usually doesn't wear the jacket, it just all feel each one of them feels characterized by the way they choose to wear the uniforms. Charles always wears the jacket. Like, you know, it's just, it's interesting. And and it shows the kind of careful eye for character design that I think Frank Quitely is not always celebrated for as much as he should be. I think that people are quite reasonably much more complimentary of the surrealist things he can do of like the vistas that he can do. But I do think that these character designs, it's one of the most successful like line wide rebrands of a team's look that I can ever think of. Well, he creates a distinct silhouette for each character while they're all wearing the same uniform, Yes, which is astounding Yeah, because so much of comic books. It's a fashion collection. It's a cohesive fashion collection. And even Emma looks like part of the team, even though she's wearing a completely different color. Absolutely. And I, it's just, it's hard to quantify how good that is unless you're looking at a bad example. Like again, not to to dunk on utopia, but it's what I've been reading. I look at (laughs) some pages from Greg Land and I don't know who is being talked to. Like there was a moment where Logan was talking to Laura Kinney and I did not know till the end of the page when Logan said Laura. I was like, oh, that's who that is. Okay. Yeah. Okay. and that's to never me, a problem here. To me, the great ex- the great counterexample is actually the era that immediately preceded this one, which is the Claremont Revolution. That 2000 relaunch where they brought back Claremont, everyone gets a new costume. And like Storms is kind of cool, but uh, with very few exceptions, they are horrendous. And it doesn't look cohesive. Like the, the characters don't... Jeans is cool, actually. But the, the characters don't look... There's nothing like visually uniting them except for like X's on their chest, but the, they're also garish. It just doesn't work for me. And this then coming out of it, I mean, like, I'm not the kind, I, typically it annoys me when to make a book more serious or more highbrow, we throw out the shiny costumes and the bright colors and all that. I don't like that. I hate. This is this one's gonna get people. I hate the Christopher Nolan Batman movies. Mm-hmm. I think they feel like movies that are contemptuous of the concept of Batman. And I think mm-hmm. that if you don't like the silliness of Batman, you shouldn't make a Batman movie. That's sort of my feeling on those films. It's very self-serious and it feels like it's embarrassed to be a Batman movie. Um so that this could easily have edged into that. And like Scott does make a comment like, we're not wearing yellow spandex anymore, don't be ridiculous. But for what this book was in this moment, I think it was really essential because it's part of what makes Xavier's finally feel like a school, mm-hmm. which it never, ever really was before. 
there were like 10 students at any given time, right? But taking a note from the movies, Morrison has like hundreds of students at the school in this run. And the staff, the faculty are wearing a uniform that mm -hmm. visually links them all as the faculty of the Institute. And I think it makes it feel like you're actually at a private school. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I really love those backup students. Like there's a lot of really fun, just kind of like throwaway mutations that get thrown out. I love the one girl who has the, the mouse all the way around her neck. Choir. Voices. Yeah, she's yeah, great. Choir. And um, this was the first time these um, Stepford Cuckoos show up, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was just a wonderful... There, no wonderful no one but Grant Morrison would ever have added those characters oh, to the yeah. X-Men. It's about <laughs> as Morrisonian a concept as you could get. Oh, that was... It's... I I know a lot of people... Like, Dallas, I know you were really surprised that a lot of people aren't high on Quietly's work. I feel like I understand it, because I know there's a really big desire for artwork in comics to always be realistic and yet pretty at the same time i notice whenever art is more stylistic in a comic it draws a lot more contention than just flat out this is how they should look irl this is straightforward pretty simple plain and it looks pretty that gets everyone behind it but when you get something that's like quietly where it's like not everyone is picturesque all the time he draws ugly people yeah, and exactly. some people will not tolerate ugly people in their mm -hmm. comic and no. won't tolerate gene gray looking like a human being rather than a perfect cgi exactly model so mm -hmm. you know that's just a and and i listen my favorite artists are people like alan davis classic mark silvestri mm -hmm. phil jimenez my favorite issues of this visually are the ones phil jimenez drew because i love that kind of lush everyone's super beautiful kind of comic book but for the story that they were trying to tell here i think it's also essential that it's ugly at the mm -hmm. beginning like that cassandra nova is ugly is ugly mm -hmm. and is an ugly thing is ugly conceptually everything about her is abject and disgusting and you really feel like you're in the muck in this arc in a way that superhero comics don't always or often mm -hmm. do yeah, and it separates it nicely from the rest of the Marvel Universe, where everything is still really colorful, really right. heroic and going on at the same time. Meanwhile, the mutants, they're in the thick of it, and they have mm -hmm. to deal with this. It starts with a genocide, so that just makes yeah. sense to me. I wish that Quietly had actually gotten the chance to do the art consistently all the way through, because mm -hmm. switching between uh, just Big Psy, EVS, and um, why, am I, why am I blanking on... We were just talking about him earlier. Igor Cor Ethan Manskyver, Igor Corby, yeah. and Phil Jimenez fill in, for, and Chris Bocciolo fill in for various mm -hmm. arcs. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like if the art had been consistent, I wouldn't have had a single problem with it because I think the switching is the biggest pet peeve to me personally. Sure. I, for whatever reason, maybe I just have rose colored glasses for this run, but the switch between artists wasn't as jarring to me in this really? as it is other times. No, I agree, honestly. My, particularly because, like, Pachala does the Weapon Plus arc specifically, right? Or like Phil Jimenez specifically does Miss, uh, Murder at the Mansion and Planet X. And those arcs both feel like... They, I mean, I would have liked to see Quietly do Planet X, honestly, mm -hmm. just because I think it would have had uh, good continuity with East for Extinction to have Quietly do both. But I think that those are both stories where it makes sense to go suddenly to a more traditional superheroic style of art because they're really deconstructing 
the genre in that way. Like it makes sense that for the arc, that's all about let's finally learn Emma's deal. We're going to go with an artist who draws beautiful pinups. You know what I mean? Like, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Right. Um, So, you know, it's, it's definitely not ideal, but I would say I do find it less jarring than some other examples of runs where like a fill in just drags me right out. Yeah. Myself. Like, what is this? You know? Absolutely. Uh, Lexi, what did you think about the art? Sorry, I was muted. <laughs> um, I definitely, it took me, I think, a lot longer to realize that they had switched, if I'm going to be honest. Mm-hmm. I feel like it wasn't Well, Cordy's super, doing like, kind of like a quietly yes, Like, he's yeah, trying yeah, to Yeah, like, you can tell that they consistent. tried not to be crazy with it, mm-hmm. which I feel like was good. But I feel like I definitely preferred the first of course but um yeah i didn't i don't think it like was super jarring to me as someone who's never seen it never read it anything so i feel like it meshed decently well for mm-hmm. my taste good i think not too close. like for a lot of people when they think comic book art i i sort of look at like Stuart Immonen as the platonic ideal for modern comic books sure well certainly and- i mean in terms of in the way that everyone in the 90s wanted to do a Jim Lee or Rob Liefeld type thing, mm-hmm. I think that Eminem is someone who a lot of people want to do an Eminem type thing now. You know, like in terms of influence, I would say that yeah. that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Absolutely. And I don't feel like I want to see Stuart Eminem's beak. I don't want to see no. Stuart Eminem's angel. I, I don't want to see Stuart Eminem's glob Herman as much as. So, like, the point of this run being that mutation can be ugly and useless, but you're still important as mm-hmm. a mutant is sold so much better because of Frank Quitely and the sort of house style that was developed around Frank Quitely's character designs and life. Angel work. Salvador is really essential in that way because, and I do think one of the flaws I do think in this run is that she kind of falls off midway through, but she's very present in these early stories. I mean, not in these for extinction, but once she comes in, she's very mm-hmm. present and the way that she is presented is very different from how Kitty Pride or Jubilee were presented to us. There is nothing kid's story about her life. Like mm-hmm. Jubilee is, you know, a, a plucky orphan who's like living in the mall. Like, and Kitty had this charmed life drawn by John Byrne, even if like, oh, my parents are getting divorced, but like very normal like you know upper middle class suburban problems to have angel we see comes out of an abusive situation comes out of poverty and her power is not i'm a ghost or i have fireworks it's i am a disgusting insect and it makes her disgusted with herself and it also further compels her abusive guardian to be abusive to her because she's this ugly unsightly thing and i i particularly like at the time it was confusing but uh the fact that she's named angel when if you go back to the 60s x-men the character angel is the most beautiful mutant right and so to go this is a character named angel who has wings but is not a beautiful angel from the sistine chapel she's a bot fly like and she has vomit powers and it is gross and she's chubby and looks like a normal person you know like i just think that 
I mean, I really, really do not like the New Warriors volume that stars Angel and Beak after the decimation in which they're drawn as just like super hot and sexy comic book people because Mm -hmm. to me that feels like a betrayal almost of like Mm -hmm. what is so interesting here. I mean, like when Beak clubs Beast half to death toward the end of this uh, section, that is one of the most like viscerally upsetting pages I could think of reading at that time when I was like younger. Um, it's it's gross. Like Beak oh, yeah. is gross. Yeah, I remember Watching the panel Beak of him running, and you see like he has like the extra joint in his arms, and they're yes. just kind of like flailing everywhere. It's visually, I almost want to say upsetting. It's just it feels off to see it. Yeah. And when he's screaming, like, she made me, like, she made yeah, me do it that cross or whatever. And Beast is like, like it's chilling. Speak. He's been clubbed in the head like 50 times. It's, yeah, it's just really fucking horrible. And Cassandra Nova, I remember just being like, this is horrible. Like, every mm-hmm. time she appeared on panel, I was frightened. I and was, that's not <laughs> typical with a supervillain for yeah. me. I was reading it today and I got to the part where she's like going around the, um, the Shi'ar spaceship and, Basically, I'm like, she's an internet troll. She's just going to everyone. She's telling them to kill themselves. She's telling them all their insecurities. And sometimes it works. Like, she convinces... She, she makes the ship kill itself, which was yeah. crazy. And it's just like, this is the definition of vile toxicity put into not human form, but something pretty close. And I thought well, that so- was really unique. It's interesting that you say that. like, Because the thing about Cassandra Nova that's really fascinating to me is... So, like, Morrison's whole concept here, right, is, like, okay, mutants are the next step in human evolution is the premise of the X-Men, but they're never brave enough to, like, pull the trigger and say, well, what does that mean, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and so what Cassandra Nova does is weaponize great replacement theory, um, which, for listeners, if they're unfamiliar, is an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that white supremacists espouse, this idea that an a coalition of Jews and people of color are trying to replace white people and, you know, seize power. And what Cassandra does is go to not Bolivar Trask, not one of the impressive Trasks we've seen <laughs> in the past of X-Men lore, this complete loser, like, dis, like you know, way branched off cousin of a Trask who's a dentist. And try to explain to him like you're supposed to inherit the earth you are a human you this is your planet and these people want to replace you and take it from you and they will succeed unless you help me kill them now and the genocide of genosha is an attempt by i mean for cassandra it's just fucking with charles that's one of the things Mm -hmm. that is so scary about cassandra is that she doesn't no, nothing besides herself and her brother are real in her conception of the universe. So it's just to her knocking over his toys. But for Trask and for the world that, that Grant is creating, it is the last gasp of a, a human supremacist culture that is afraid of being replaced by this minority group. And it resonates because that's what compels genocides in real life all the time, Mm -hmm. right? So it's just one of those things where the mutant metaphor is tricky. It doesn't always work. 
But I think that Grant made it work better than just about almost anybody ever has with things like mutant town and like mutant subculture rising, but also the idea of this minority group as an existential threat that needs to be stopped lest it steal the world from your children or corrupt your children or whatever else. Like it's that, it has that specific energy. And I, I, it's part of why I find Cassandra so terrifying because that concept given human form and near omnipotent psychic power is a very scary threat. Absolutely. Uh, Lexi, what did you think of Cassandra Nova being introduced to this villain? She was scary as shit. I do not <laughs> like that lady. Uh, ooh, ooh, yeah. I... I actually gasped when they were like, oh, she's Xavier's evil twin sister. I was like, no. It's good, right? Yeah. I was like, (laughs) it definitely took me off guard. And like the the panel of him like choking her to death in the womb. In the womb? So hard. I was like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be me if I had a twin. (laughs) That was me in Dallas if we would have been any closer together. (laughs) You are the Cassandra Nova. I am the Cassandra of Dallas's life. that issue you know i remember when the nuff said month happened and like most of the issues that came out that month were pretty whatever Mm -hmm. and then that one is so iconic that people forget it was part of a theme month they're just like yeah that incredible silent issue of new (laughs) x i'm like yeah all of the marvel comics were silent that month people go really i'm like yeah no that's but that's the only one you need to read that's um, admittedly me. <laughs> yeah, but that's what I'm saying. Is like it, it is so indelibly perfect that mm-hmm. it is no longer part of a gimmick month. Like how the annual. Did you guys read the annual? Yeah, for I this? did. Yeah, because it's in the middle mm-hmm. of the two arcs. Um, the annual being in landscape mm-hmm. was also like we're all doing landscape this month. Marvel <laughs> wanted people to buy comics. They had a bunch of gimmick months in the early aughts. I love that one. Was buying comics. Go off. Yeah. I love Marvel being like, these ones are the flip-up books. Um, right. <laughs> like, people loved holographics five years ago. Like, Well, right, yeah. Like, now? Well, they were trying to recapture that 90s speculator market kind of thing, right? So it was like, oh, this month, they're all sideways. Uh, <laughs> this month, no one's allowed to talk. Isn't so, that quirky know. and fun? Isn't that weird? But, <laughs> it, it, but Grant, classically... Just like looked at it and was like, well, I know exactly where I can fit this into my story. This will be where I do the Cassandra Nova reveal by having Gene and Emma jump into Xavier's head and dig around. <laughs> I mean, like it, it just works. It works so beautifully. I love that issue. Uh, what did you two think of the silent issue? I feel like it made sense, strangely. Like it didn't seem jarring to me, but now that you say that, I'm like, oh, maybe I should have had a complex thought about that, but I didn't. <laughs> no, but that's exactly what I'm saying is that like it makes it so natural. Whereas every other Marvel comic happening at the time, there's just a really weird issue yeah. in the middle where nobody talks. <laughs> yeah. And I also thought it was hilarious that Emma was just like getting attacked by this goo for the entire issue and could not get past it. While Jean is just like, yeah, thanks. Thanks for your help. Yeah. And she was like, thanks Yo. for the help, Em. I had other things. <laughs> I was on busy. My, on my plate. I was busy. I was getting attacked by this weird green goo. 
The Nuff said issue is fun for me. I actually read the um the pastiche that happens later, the giant sized um Jean Grey. The one and that Hickman like, and yeah, Russell Daughterman yeah. did, yeah. So I read that one. I'm like, hey, this issue's really good. And they're like, oh, you mean the ripoff of Nuff said? I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> oh, it's not. People are so mean. It's not a ripoff if you redraw <laughs> specific panels as an homage. Like it, it, it's, right. it, it, you know, like it's yeah. not like there's a. It's a sample. Is exactly. what it is, which is different from a ripoff. Um, so I, I went back and read it, and I'm like, "This is this is really great." I think it's Quietly's artwork at um his best. I think um, Dallas, you actually texted me a lot about it and about the different um, things that we saw inside Cassandra and Xavier's head, and talked a lot about Grant potentially using this issue to juggle a lot of their. Um, self-realization about their queer identity and i thought that was really interesting i think there's a lot of small little details in there that definitely feel like hinting at that if that makes sense yeah i definitely i think there's definitely like a young a youngian vibe to cassandra Nova, yeah she's obviously. the anima to charles's yeah. like higher consciousness right, right? and but i do and maybe it's just me pulling on too many threads but reading this to me it felt like there was a conversation being had about gender identity with oh, I agree. Charles Xavier and specifically the image where Charles is there with his head all full of thoughts. Mm-hmm. And there is the male torso with the gas mask and the female torso with the gas mask. It, it really clicked right there for me that I was like, I think, and again, this could be nothing, but I think that Cassandra Nova is a little bit of an expression of fear about gender nonconformity. Oh, absolutely. She is the female self that Charles murdered in the womb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a very, like, she is his female half and he killed her because he felt threatened by her. Mm-hmm. And that is, that, I mean, that's what, that's, that's what it is. And it's very specifically like, oh, they're going to wear the same outfits they're both bald, but something about her being bald is really unsettling to the reader, right? Like, because women aren't supposed to be bald. Like, she does things that are t- perfectly normal for Charles to do, but they unsettle us because they defy the expectations of the genre. Um, and also, what defies our expectation of the genre gender-wise is, like, women don't do shit like this in superhero comics. Mm. Like even evil women, even Celine, who's like real evil, it's glamorous evil. She's a sexy, glamorous, evil kind of thing. Cassandra Nova like shoots out her protoplasmic side arms and like rips people's faces off and like none, it's gross. It's really fucking gross, all of it. When she's puppeting Charles's body around like the mansion nude in it's like, in like an, alien tentacle monster you're just like why is any of this happening i hate this but like in a great way and in that Mm -hmm. very like the second issue or whatever when when she kills trask by just phasing her hand through his face yes Mm -hmm. you know like kitty pride didn't do that she could but she doesn't i i just i love the imagery with being a big fan of Grant's Doom Patrol, you think of Rebus, right? As yes. this mm-hmm. this big celebration of of Grant's not gender nonconforming. Mm-hmm. Or Lord Fanny and the Invisibles. Like there are a, a couple characters where it's more on the surface, mm-hmm. but it's definitely here. 
I feel like those are really fun. So much of Grant's work is about self-actualization and those are really great. If you accept both sides of yourself, there can be such powerful moments. I felt like Cassandra Nova tapped into some of the fear about, Mm -hmm. is it bad to accept this part of myself? Right. And the, I mean, if you haven't gotten all the way through to the end yet, and I uh, close your ears maybe for a second, but like in here comes tomorrow, the idea that the perfected Xavier is mm-hmm. a Cassandra who has learned to internalize Xavier's values and calls herself Cassandra Nova Xavier. If you want to view that as Charles becoming a female self, you absolutely mm-hmm. can. Right. So, um, like the evil, the evilest part of Charles is the woman inside him. And then in Here Comes Tomorrow, the greatest Charles in the worst scenario that the mutants could be in is also the woman inside him. And I think that there's a, I, there's, listen, when I get a chance to talk to Grant about this in depth at some point, these are all the themes that I'm going <laughs> to dig way, way deep into mm-hmm. because it's what I'm obsessed with, with this run more than anything else is all of the very deep gender and sexuality stuff in this run that to me is part of what made it so electric and different in the genre because it, it just in for a comic that was not like Vertigo or something like that, it you know like Sandman does lots of things that feel like this, but it was crazy to me to read it in an X Men comic. Even though Chris Claremont's X Men has all kinds of sublimated queer and gender nonconforming and all kinds of fascinating stuff in it, but it's always like a superhero comic, right? And there are so many moments in this comic where I feel like I'm reading something else like a horror comic or uh i I don't even know what to call it you know what i mean Mm -hmm. i think grant morrison's new x-men is an evolution of the superhero genre that it changed the whole genre forever in the way that like watchmen did you know i also i feel like it is very much responding to the authority and how much the authority changed comics Mm -hmm. in 99 where all of a sudden our team is all in leather they're all walking out of the matrix and changing everything. And I think what's fascinating about new X-Men is that ultimately the authority says, man, liberalism didn't work out, but if we're liberal fascists, that if could we be let's really be fascists, cool. right. If yeah. we were fascists, we could save the world. And I think, Grant realized that that rang hollow, even as everyone was celebrating that message. Well, but it's the, no, I, see, I, I would argue that the authority is a satire, though, right? Like, I don't think you're supposed to think that the authority are correct. I don't think you are, but I think that many people did. Oh, like, well, I, yeah. I, I can't well, that's read. why Alan Moore hates Watchmen, because yeah. so many people read Watchmen and think Rorschach is the good guy. Yeah. And so <laughs> I think Grant, reading the authority, realizes what's going on and takes the new X Men and says, well, then we'll become educators, right? Like the big Mm -hmm. shift at the end with Cassandra Nova is the exact opposite of what the authority would have done. The authority would have killed Cassandra Nova, but the new X-Men do not. Well, and if Scott represents the mutant race, right? Like he's Xavier's son, because Mm -hmm. that's been the premise from the 60s, really. If he is the person who will direct where things go, then the ultimate symbolism of 
by himself, he will accomplish nothing. With Gene, we would have just repeated these cycles over and over and over again. With Emma, a future for mutants that is good can be built. Mm -hmm. And it's Gene who has to realize that. That is Gene's great epiphany as the White Phoenix of the Crown is that she and Charles were not the answer. And that is politically fascinating to me because so many X-Men comics are obsessed with the idea that Charles Xavier's politics are right. And I think one of the things that Krakoa, that this era has synthesized, I mean, I often, I've often said on, on my show that like Claremont's X-Men is a thesis. Grant Morrison's X-Men is an antithesis to that thesis. And then Krakoa is synthesizing it because I think Krakoa has a generosity of spirit that the Claremont run has that the Morrison run doesn't really have. The Morrison run is a deeply cynical piece of work. Um, it has spiritually, this current stuff feels more like Claremont, mm -hmm. but the politics of it are right out of new X-Men. And that I think is to me, my ideal X-Men comic, right? So I'm, I'm living large right now. <laughs> I absolutely agree. Um, and do you have any like final thoughts or maybe like what this run meant to you before we move into any listener questions? Um, final thought. It's hard for me because there's so much in this comic that I, I've, I think I've told you before Dallas, but I've read through final crisis about eight times now. <laughs> and I feel like I understand about 95% of the comic now. And that's how that's I impressive. Approach, right? I, I, I don't think I understand remotely that much of Final Crisis. <laughs> that was one of my first DC books. That was a mistake. Ooh, wow. <laughs> See, part of why I think I don't, like, New X-Men is very easy for me because I have this, like, absurd encyclopedic knowledge of the right. X-Men in my head. Final Crisis, I was never, like, a huge DC reader. So mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff that Grant is playing with was stuff that when I read Final Crisis, I didn't get it. Right. Like, I did because I didn't get the references. Oh, yeah. Right. See, that's where I live. I live in that's that. Saying, I know you're, like, a DC fan, stuff. right? So, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, I haven't read Final Crisis in, like, a deck. I should revisit that. Honestly. It's it's something that gets, <laughs> it's like, you never win, but it gets easier each time. Right. <laughs> I never want time. to win with Grant. I just want to, like, go a couple rounds. You exactly. Know I, mean? like, I know Grant will always win, but I'm okay mm -hmm. with that. And that's that's my, my thing here is I feel like I've gone through round two of this. And I feel mm -hmm. like more of it has clicked with me than before. This is the first time I read through it, taking into mind things like what you brought up on your Emma podcast and what you brought up earlier is the looking at Emma Frost through the trans perspective. Mm -hmm. And for me personally, that's something that I really relate to. I really think like um, the idea of gender's performance is something that's really resonant with me. And um, I think like in like a year's time, if I can get to a place where I'm like, I am Emma Frost, I'm going to be in a good place. <laughs> but I... When I met Grant, I told them I spent four years in high school wishing to be Emma Frost when I grew up. <laughs> and they said, well, you're doing a great job, clearly. And, um, <laughs> I was very moved by that. And then they signed my omnibus. But That's awesome. Uh, Emma is... 
Grant Morrison's Emma is exactly like the person that I, I mean, apart from some of her more pretentious foibles, let's say, mm-hmm. but like in terms of the way that she views the world, in terms of the way she views her responsibilities to people less fortunate and younger and more disadvantaged than her in the way that she comports herself with people who don't respect her. Mm-hmm. She is just everything. I yeah. think. I think the moment she has in the car where she's leaving and she has, has that moment, she's like, you know what? Actually, no, I'm not doing this. And she turns yeah, around. No. Yeah. I got to go back there and kill that lady actually. <laughs> so I'm going to do that. <laughs> perfect. Perfect queen moment. That was... I can't leave the kids with her. Yeah, like that's exactly. the thing. Or the children. Exactly. Yeah. And I feel like it's a book that I'm going to keep coming back to. And a book that I want to finish this time. I know X May for us is going to keep us pretty busy. But this is something I want to keep going through. I promised myself I'd be doing a big Emma Frost read through this year. And it just hasn't happened yet. Because there's been so many other things I've been trying to get for done. Sure. But This is only, which is, the craziest thing about the Morrison run is it is only like 35 issues or something like that. Right. So they, like, they, they run read- quick. And they, yeah, so you can pound through it pretty quickly, I think, if you just like set aside a day or something, yeah. you know? And we, sh- we should be pretty good. I think for the last month, we only have like one issue on tap. So I think that week should be a pretty solid <laughs> week, if nothing else. But sure. I want to get through it. And I want to go back and read it again and again, because I feel like it gets better each time. And I feel the same way with every Morrison book. So... I feel like I'm at the moment where it's like, I don't have final thoughts on it yet because I feel like I'm still in the middle of the experience. I'm still learning. I'm still growing with it. And yeah, this is just, it's it's incredible when a book has that effect on you. When you're like, I finished it, but I'm not quite done with it yet. Well, I've often said that comic books are like Torah. Mm-hmm. Um, not to be, I mean, other people have said that too. Jay mm-hmm. Edden and I had a, a fun conversation uh, once about how comics fandom is like midrash like it's one of the mm-hmm. many ways that that comics is like a very jewish medium um coming out of the experiences of its creators and all that is that comics fandom is about arguing there's no dogma there isn't really like a canon that you can point to as much as the marvel wiki would like for there to be because every character has been written by 500 people so you point to them and you can make a case for like gene's a great example Gene fans often disagree with the way I characterize Gene on my show, but that's mm-hmm. because to me, the two genes that matter most are the Claremont Simonson gene and this one. Mm-hmm. And so, like, if you, like, for example, Tom Taylor's written a lot of comics I think are, are fantastic. I don't vibe with his take on Jean Grey and X yep. and Red. Mm-hmm. And a lot of Jean Grey fans love that book. And so if that's your idea of who Jean Grey is, then yeah, we're not necessarily going to connect. But I don't think mm-hmm. that Morrison's gene or Taylor's gene are necessarily like, I don't think one is more valid than the other, but there is certainly one that I prefer. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Say as a, as a Carol Danvers fan, I completely. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah, I bet. My condolences on yeah, that thank one. Thank you. We're still, we're, we're, we're moving past it. I gotta be real. I've only ever liked Carol when she was the ghost in rogues head. That's really, that is my favorite Carol. You know, that 
I'm, to be that sounds like it's on point for you so that's completely fair well it's just that 80s 80s because well, the funny thing about and not mm-hmm. to, this is not a carol damers podcast but the uh <laughs> the, the no it's just fun because in the 80s particularly in the outback era none of the x-men like rogue but they mm-hmm. all like carol and so mm-hmm. whenever rogue gets knocked on the head and turns into carol they're all like carol great to see you and it's like a fun <laughs> it's just like they really enjoy like betsy mm-hmm. in particular is just like rogue is insufferable to her but she loves carol so it's just a funny thing when you have this character who can be like Ranma one half style, like bonked on the head and turn into something else. But in this case, it's Rogue or Carol personality wise. It's very funny. Um, just the best image of them, like all the X Men just carrying around like a, a pipe at all. They're like Rogue, if you get too if you get too annoying, we're gonna turn you into Carol. Yeah, they just <laughs> knock her on the head. Betsy figures out how to do it with like a size app. At Does one she? Point. <laughs> <laughs> Rogue is just switch if you don't stop. Well, Rogue is Rogue is threatening Betsy because like they have a sparring match that gets like a little too heated. This is in the first issue of Inferno, and um, uh, Betsy's like, "Get your hands off me!" And Rogue is like, "Make me or whatever." And so Betsy just side psy- blasts her in the fucking dome and <laughs> knocks her out. And when she gets up, she's like, "And stay down." And Klaus is like, "Betsy, what the fuck?" And then Carol's like, "It's me! It's Carol! It's Carol! Don't hit me again." <laughs> <laughs> I just love the idea of Rogue like losing core memories from the amount of time she's been hit. Yeah. To There's <laughs> also a great Carol. moment where Carol redecorates Rogue's room without asking, and like Rogue comes back and just like, "Why is my room like this?" And it's just like because <laughs> Carol redecorated while she was in control of the body. But there's a little part of Rogue's like, "Did I do this?" I but don't there's remember. also then the really incredible arc in Genosha where Rogue is depowered and content warning like sexually assaulted by the soldiers in genosha Mm -hmm. and carol in her head says let me drive i can handle this i'm older than you i've been here i've been in the places like this like you need to just let me take over Mm -hmm. and rogue is like okay and lets her do it and it's just carol for the rest of the arc because carol's like i'm gonna drive and to me that is like a very again like it's a shame that that carol isn't like the real carol because it's the carol i love most like the carol Mm -hmm. who does that for rogue is to me like a really powerful character and moving character and just a wonderful person. And like now when it's like Carol's a cop prosecuting future crime, I'm like, okay, cool. Like that's not my Carol <laughs> personally. Same. <laughs> uh, anyway, sorry. I took us off track there, but no, that I, was I, my I, fault. That's a thousand yeah, well, it's fine. Um, Lex, what did you think of new X-Men and just this first week of X-Men for you? I think that this made me very excited for the rest of the month. Like I Well, that's great. Yeah, I'm very excited. I think it was the perfect first jumping in point for this month for the chunks of X-Men that we're going to read for the next 3 weeks. So, I'm very excited. I really good. enjoyed everybody. I also did get a good chuckle about the Tony the Tiger joke with Beast. That was that was very comical to me because i was like wait a minute why is he a cat i thought he was a monkey (laughs) the ongoing ongoing subplot of trish tilby refusing to fuck hank as a cat and so hank pretending to be gay to get revenge and then trish outing him to the world as like re-revenge that's one of my favorite grant subplots here and it's another way that like the sexuality gender performance mm-hmm. interplays is because there's there's a great scene people make fun of it now but i'm like guys this is hank is supposed to sound like a fucking idiot but mm-hmm. 
it's like Hank and Scott have a debate where Scott's like, but okay, but Hank, you're not gay. I know you're not gay. And Hank is like, okay, but if there are, if, if I can be a role model for gay youth, why not? And like, it's, it's honestly really funny though. Like, because it, but it, ta- it takes apart sort of a lot of like the postmodern celebrity culture thing that, that, that I just think is fascinating. And so much of what Morrison does in this run is really prescient. I think the Quentin Quire character presages a lot of the alt-right internet stuff that was mm-hmm. about to happen, but hadn't quite happened yet. Um, and that's also a way that like celebrities signal, like, celebrities being like i'm queer in like a vague way that i'm not going to talk about but now it means something and here's our ad campaign and sort of the way that minority identities could be commercialized in that way is something that was starting to happen more and more and is now i mean now there's whole books about it you know what i mean so um the fact that hank isn't even gay at all is extra funny as like a (laughs) you know but uh it does feel like a lot of the critiques that people make of queer celebrities now is exactly the way that Scott is like, Hank, what the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) Well, like who are you materially helping at all besides yourself? No one, but okay, whatever. I feel like Morrison's Hank is a sleeper hit. Like a lot of people. Oh, it's great. It's the last, it's the last Hank I love Mm -hmm. because right after Morrison, Hank starts truly driving off the cliff into (laughs) full authoritarian psycho. Right. He did some crimes. He couldn't see it with his yeah and listen i mean i think it made him an ever more fascinating character but boy what a what talk about a you know i I always joke that the characters always go back to their 90s jim lee forms but like beast has gotten about as far away from like cartoon 90s beast as you could get at this point you know it is very true um so connor do you have any thoughts about what new x-men means to you before we pivot Sure. Um, well, I mean, if you want to hear me talk about New X-Men for hours on end, you should check out a couple of specific episodes of Cerebro, mm-hmm. probably, um, listeners. Uh, the ones on Emma and Cassandra Nova, probably most, well, and Jean, like those three. Um, but for me, Grant Morrison's New X-Men was a mind expanding book for me. It made me understand that just because someone's interpretation of the material wasn't always mine, that didn't make it bad, right? Like Morrison clearly came at it from a very different position than I did. But once I opened my mind to like, okay, it doesn't actually matter if like this is a continuity error in this one issue. Like it doesn't, that doesn't actually matter because the story's good. And once I let that go, I had so much fun with it. And that taught me something about enjoying an ongoing story generally. Like sometimes Mm -hmm. it's okay if the nerdiest little detail is wrong or whatever. Like, is the story good? Is the story good? Like, it doesn't matter that much if it's perfect on the Marvel Wiki. What matters is, and no disrespect to the Marvel Wiki people, y'all are doing you know, tons of free editorial work. I'm just saying it helped me understand that you could have discrete works of art within a larger story. Like Grant Morrison's New X-Men is a novel. 
that's separate on some level from the rest of this 60-year franchise. It, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It has these themes, and it changes the franchise going forward, but it also stands alone, which is why when people talk about the end of New X-Men and the big twist at the end and how that gets retconned out five months later, and they're like, well, that there goes that run. I'm like, no, because the Grant Morrison story is still the same story you don't have to keep reading it. Or if you do, you don't have to keep reading it as one narrative. You know, like you can say these 30 issues are their own story and that's fine. Yep. Um, but yeah, I mean, mostly it just made me feel very seen as a queer teenager, a gay teenager, but I was still figuring out like that. I had, I was having like my like bi or gay moment. Like how, how do I, what is my like mode of attraction? What do I, what do I want and who do I want to be? And Emma was a really important character for me uh, at that time. And this was a time when I was the only out gay kid at my high school, in my, in my class anyway. Um, and that was not my choice. It was something that happened because of, things that happened but like it was just it was this was a pre-glee time is what i always call it and it's not to give too much undue credit to glee itself as like a work of art but i think that the high school experience in america changed really dramatically in the last 10 years 15 years and uh this book was a real lifeline for me at an important time and i'm very grateful mm -hmm. that i had it I like that. Um, I this is the comic that made me fall in love with Grant Morrison's work. Oh, uh, same, when I, yeah. When I read this as one of my first comics, I read it clicked that this was something different, and I I remember I flipped to the front of the omnibus, and I was like, "You will remember this name, like Grant Morrison." Mm -hmm. People told you to read this, and it hit, and it's it's opened up this whole hyper fixated tunnel of this person, this personality, the themes they choose to explore. And it's been really fruitful for me. And uh, it was fun to return to new X-Men now knowing so much more about Grant, so many more, so much more about their body of work and still feeling the magic of new X-Men mm -hmm. reading it. It was still one of my favorite things they've done. I liked it even more now. And I think that's, it's really special that way where this can be someone's first comic or it can be their thousandth comic and it's going to resonate and it's going to be something that sticks with you. Yeah, I just, I just always, all I can ever think is like, cause it's polarizing, right? And I'm mm -hmm. just always really sad for people who don't like it. Uh, yeah. Cause I, I'm just like, I mean, listen, it takes a village and like people have, people are entitled to have whatever opinions they want about art, but I love this comic so much that I can't imagine not liking it. Like, I feel like my life would be so much sadder if I didn't love this comic. <laughs> not to say that you have a sad life if you don't like this comic and you're listening to this podcast, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe give it another shot. Mm -hmm. It's really good guys. It really, really is. Like I was it's really good. <laughs> I was so shocked this week at how many people were like, hated it. I was like, I don't know what it's like to live in your brain because yeah. and I don't want to. Yeah. And, and honestly, sometimes I think all it takes to turn someone around the story is just to change your change your perspective on it. Because like 
I hope just listening to us talk, and especially you, Connor, because you're the one who turned me around on Emma, I hope people listening to us talk about the story, if you didn't like it before, take what we said into account and try it again. And see if you can see those same themes that we're pointing out. See if you can see the the bits and pieces that maybe you didn't last time. And who knows, maybe it'll work for you the way it worked for me, you know? So I think that's worth considering. I'd also just say sometimes it's okay if you don't understand what's going on. Yeah. Like, it is okay to read a story and just have vibes and then, like, <laughs> go back later and read it again. Like, that's okay. You can, it, it doesn't make it bad and it doesn't make you stupid. Like, this right, is also fine. something. I'll read Doom Patrol again, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> With that note, because I've already got you at 90 minutes, guys, we probably get to the questions, right? Yes. You told yes. me there are, like, six of them. There are. It's like All eight. right. Yeah, there, there are. A few. I, I, I am, I am wearing my Cerebro merch that is by the artist Valentine M. Smith, a friend of mine, mm-hmm. who, and it, it's Rachel Summers with the, um, the tagline "Too gay to understand time travel." So <laughs> the point is, to get that one. which is a bit from my show, and the point is, please don't correct my math. I know that it's wrong every time. <laughs> every time I say a number, it is not the right number, and you just got to roll with it. It is. Perfect. Um, I was wearing my It's Gay to Date Polaris shirt the other day. Dating Polaris is gay. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yes. Someone in the store was like, I don't even know what that means, but I really like it. And I was <laughs> like, Isn't it a great shirt? It's a great shirt. Because Valentine's so good, right? I was like, oh, yeah. I want like a romance comic cover from like the 50s, but it's like Lorna and dating her if you're a man is gay. And Valentine was like, got it, and came back like a week later with the most incredible piece. I was like, God damn, it's even better than I could ever have imagined. Oh, I got uh, your well, Betsy you're wearing... print. It's so pretty. Okay. You want and you're read... wearing my you're wearing the uh, Savage Land Dinosaur Magic shirt, uh, yeah, which this is the first one that Valentine and I did together. I have like two of them in different colors. I wear my own merch now, which is like really I feel embarrassing, but because <laughs> but because it's Valentine's art, I like want because then people ask me like, "What's that shirt?" I'm like, "It's by this incredible artist, Valentine M. Smith." I'm like I feel like I'm doing my part, but also being really conceited. I, I wear the Candy Southern shirt like yep. It's, Frequently. it's the only superhero shirts that my wife likes. Everything else, like, she's they like... They don't feel... They're, they're not like a superhero shirt. It yeah. just looks like cool art. And if people ask, you're like, it's the X-Men. And they're like, really? And you're like, well, it's complicated. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, it's, it's, a, it's some obscure joke from a gay podcast about the <laughs> X-Men drawn by an incredible artist. But don't don't sweat it too much. And they're like, sir, you're at a Subway sandwich. Could you just pay and leave, please? <laughs> Someone called me. My, my barista at Starbucks called me. They were like, remind me your name again. I was like, Connor. And they were like, I just think of you as the guy with the great shirts. And I was like, oh, <laughs> Valentine, at it again. Like, who, me? Oh, oh me? <laughs> I'm like, well, I did come up with the ideas for them, but I can't draw for shit. So here's the artist's card. And then there's oh. me that has Robert Pattinson as a playboy on my shirt. That checks I out. love that for you, though. Listen, <laughs> love it. it takes we all we all need to do what feels right for us start, mm-hmm. sartorially. So it would be better you. if you were sparkly on it. <laughs> mm, that's where you lose me, but um, <laughs> but I I support your journey. Alexis, the Batman fan, started on exactly the day that movie released. I will never forget the week before covering Batman Year One, and she's like, "Batman is the dumbest character I've ever read." And then that movie comes Reading out Year One, Year One, and then the next week she was like, "I just think Batman has a lot of depth." 
I think I, was like, I did not say you know, that. Those words did not come she, out of my mouth. Has she read the long Halloween? She has not yet. <laughs> you got to do the do that as like a Halloween episode. It would That's be not very a bad fun. idea. It long Halloween is incredible. It's the best thing Jeff Loeb ever wrote, and uh, it's probably my favorite Batman story. <laughs> it is, a good and if one. you if she likes Batman now. I, That's jokes on him. I never did not like Batman. I just didn't want to read it anymore. So I just kept thinking <laughs> about it. Well, that's fair. Who wants to just keep reading Batman? Apparently everyone. Just like, keep like, comic every month, but... It's the only... I'm going to read Chips, I'll tell you that. I mean, you know, like the right writer on Batman can get me very enthused. Yes, yes. I'm very excited about Rom V's Batman. Uh, I'm glad you are. Anyways. <laughs> Questions now. Wow. That is so grumpy. Read a question, and Jesus. If Rumpy is listening, I think you're great. I, I also do too. I just yeah. like you on anything other than Batman. Anyways. <laughs> hey, uh, really, this is from Doug, by the way, from for every kind why did I, from every, for every kind of geek. I'm so great. sorry, Doug. Hi, Doug. Rum V just cursed you, oh, actually. Yeah, that was a that, malediction you just invited. That makes sense. You know what? I'll go, old, fine, I'll, it comes back to you. <laughs> I'll read your Batman and, and your Justice League that. and your Catwoman, okay? It's fine. Yeah. Oh, Morrison clearly, clearly went all out trying to push the characters in new directions, especially with Jean Grey. A lot of controversy since the run has been focused on how writers don't really know what to do with Jean. If you all had the chance, how would you build on Jean's character post-Morrison era? Always love tuning in. Enjoy new X-Men and happy casting. Sorry I butchered that. Anyways, what do you all think? I would have left her dead. I said that already. So, uh, Killer. I, think, yeah, I would have left her six feet under. Um, Worm food, here, Here's the thing, actually. Like To be serious, <laughs> I think that what Grant set up here that is brilliant is that from this point on, in my opinion, Jean Grey should only have appeared as like the specter at DC, basically. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that she should have been a cosmic entity who shows up for that kind of plot. And in the Utopia era, that is how they use her. Like, she'll just pop in from the white hot room sometimes to like do a deus ex machina. To me, that's where it should have gone. Um, I don't think, I don't think after Dark Phoenix, they ever should have brought her back. I understand that it was an editorial thing. I mean, Chris Claremont agrees with me, right? So uh, there's that. But after Grant Morrison's Gene story, I truly don't think Gene Gray as a human being is a story that is ever going to work for me. So for me, I just would have, I just would have kept her dead. Wonderful. Lex, do you think Gene should be dead or do you have a different plan? <laughs> Maybe a little less dramatic than dead, but I just maimed, say, perhaps. Yeah, oh, but she just, loves to be dead. It's not that dramatic. She does it all the time. Woman, woman after my own heart. She's just laying on the ground. She's dramatic. like, "Has anyone noticed I'm dead yet? <laughs> I'm dead again. Where's Scott, my husband that doesn't care about me?" Scott, tonight we're gonna play. I'll be dead, and you'd be very sad about it. And he's like, "I'm mm -hmm. going to Emma's house." He's like, no. I'm sorry. I just there's nothing, and pe the people are still so mad about him making out with Emma on Jean's fresh grave. But to it's, me, that is fully hey, iconic. Maybe it's a turn on. <laughs> Listen, it's beautiful. Jean told him to. It's fine. Fine. They were on a break. I'm gonna use that. <laughs> That's about the biggest break there is. Oh, dead. <laughs> Well, you so gotta use that pickup line. Like the ghost of my wife just said, we should. The ghost make of out my right wife, here. my the ghost of my late wife says we should totally start necking at okay. her gravesite right now. 
She says it'd be really hot, especially. She's into it, <laughs> honestly. She's about to become fire and life incarnate and devour the stars, <laughs> baby, and all of that. So I'm feeling some warmth here, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Claremont wrote in his script in Dark Phoenix that it was like a cosmic orgasm. Love it. That is horrifying. But okay. <laughs> I mean, it, but it's that is what the Phoenix is, right? Is yeah. like Gene like being like, I'm powerful now and I am in yes. control of my adult womanhood. Gene. Model girl no more, you know? That actually, the Butte at the beginning of that story was mm-hmm. the first time Scott ever figured out what he was doing. Well, it's the first time he ever has sex canonically, which he gets very freaked out about in Simonson X Factor because he realizes that wasn't Gene, it was the Phoenix. And then he has like a whole existential crisis about it. <laughs> He's like, oh no, I just, I just boned the Phoenix and then Odin comes in and is like, first time? And the thing is, it's fine because, like, he he's all freaked out about it. Meanwhile, Gene was fucking the Cobalt Man's brother in college for, like, half of those 60s issues. So it's not like he betrayed her with mm-hmm. this psychic entity that looked just like her. Also, it was her. Shut the fuck up. Who cares? We all know it was her. It's it fine. is so funny, the dynamic that Gene was Scott's first, but Scott was not Gene's first. Yes. That feels really good. That's one good. of the things I really like about them. That feels actually. very good. And that's, again, like, Morrison's Jean is so good because she's kind of like messy and mean. Like I, I think that Jean is interesting when she gets to be a person. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. part of what's so great about this run is saying like Scott and Jean's relationship is fucked up and it's not his fault. It's not her fault. It's kind of both their fault, but also it's the fact that they have been through the most insane shit imaginable. And at a certain point, it's going to just be hard to look at each other. Mm-hmm. I like the coldness of the relationship. Like it's I like so the- cold. They haven't fucked in years is the mm-hmm. vibe as soon as new X-Men starts, you know? It's wonderful. I'm, Lexi, I'm sorry. We took away from Yeah, no, from sorry. You. No, sorry. Okay. What, what is your plan? I was just going to say, if she could just embody that picture of her as the phoenix, but not as the phoenix, with her like mm-hmm. trench coat and her hair on fire, just that, forever, mm-hmm. would be great. <laughs> That's a good vibe. That's a mm-hmm. really good vibe. Yeah, like it's that, a vibe I was like, sure. yeah, you're cool. Okay. Honestly, we'll, let you be the, we'll let you be the boss. All right. <laughs> I'm a thousand percent okay with ascendancy to godhood. That sounds pretty chill. Yeah, that's just what I, I think. That's just who the character is, and I think that taking that away from her sucked. Yeah, because honestly, yeah, I can definitely feel the just like stagnation. She just exists as a character right now, mm-hmm. and just and I I like what Jerry's been doing with. Like, I think that the writing on her has been good, honestly. But mm-hmm. uh, is she just kind of around because she's supposed to be? Yeah, because Jean Grey's story ended twenty years ago, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, I fully sold myself on a fan theory of where House of X Powers of Ten was going to go with the Phoenix well before okay. uh, Jay Hicks decided to skedaddle. But uh, sure. I I really thought the line in, I don't remember what issue it was, when they talked about the Phoenix being one of the only things that could defeat the Phalanx. I was mm-hmm. like, all right, so we're going to have Moira go become the phalanx and like gene will be deus ex machina phoenix god by the end i think that's still gonna happen i just think it might not happen for another like seven years but i (laughs) i do think that's where we're going and i i got excited about that and so 
I don't have any plan in the meantime <laughs> until that right. happens because I like Jean as Phoenix. I don't like the Phoenix as a force that gets passed around the room. No, to me neither. To me, to me, the Phoenix exclusively is Jean or Rachel. And it's yeah. again, like no disrespect to Echo or to Rebecca Roanhorse, who I think is a brilliant writer, but like Phoenix was Chris Claremont saying, I am going to make Marvel girl, the most powerful X-Man mm-hmm. and everything that spins out of it is based in that core premise. And the reason that it works is because Phoenix is Jean and Jean is Phoenix. Yeah. I am what I am. Like it is to me to take it from her is unless it's with Rachel, who's her daughter, but like to take it from her to me is to regress the character in a way that I don't think can work conceptually. The character feels cut off at the knees, ultimately, yeah. with... I feel like Especially no one... Especially after Morrison, when she accepts that they are one and the same. It's yeah. like, to have her reject it in Phoenix Resurrection feels like her backsliding as a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just, ultimately for me, it feels like people don't know what to do with her unless she's being the Phoenix, so we might as well make her the mm-hmm. Phoenix. That's kind of how I feel yeah. about it, too. Also, she could wear the costume. Which is her best know. costume. Which is one of the best costumes that there is in a mm-hmm. superhero comic. So, oh, Awesome. Absolutely. Um, next, I can read the next question. Yeah. Um, all right. So it says, hey, it's T from the Comics Cave. Huge fan of the podcast. My question is, what did you guys think of Grant Morrison's introduction of secondary mutations? And what is your favorite secondary mutation? Either one that was introduced in this run or later on. I was a little skeptical of the premise at first. I actually think Claremont kind of introduces it a little bit before this run starts with Sage, like jumpstarting people's secondary mutations. But Morrison is the one identified with it most because of Emma. Uh, And I think that that's the best one. Mm -hmm. I mean, (laughs) that is part of what elevated the character to A-list status is that she has this really cool new power that made her very distinctive versus the 10 other telepaths in this franchise. And the thing about it that's so shocking, much like everything about Emma in this run, is that it was a total accident of editorial. Morrison wanted to use Colossus and Storm and was told, you can't have Storm and Colossus just died. So, okay, I need another woman on the team And I need someone with like an armor power who can punch through a wall if the plot demands it. And so they brought in Emma Frost and gave her a diamond power. It was just to patch up like editor. It's not anywhere in the, she's not in the pitch. And she became the defining signature character of the whole run. It's crazy. And and that we don't have Colossus, so someone needs a super strong punchy power made the character immediately iconically identifiable to people. People know her more for the diamond thing than for her telepathy at this point. It feels very Morrison environmental fiction. Like the story yes. wanted this to happen and so it did. Emma wanted her mm-hmm. moment, and so mm-hmm. she got her moment. Yeah, and honestly, I feel <clears throat> I feel bad because I think like Emma's my favorite, but I can't really think of too many others. I know Beast, like his feline form, counts as one, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of, yeah. I mean, th- that was triggered in extreme by Sage, but like also, it's 
evolving out of like if you really go back the first secondary mutation is beast getting blue and furry in the first place which he triggers in himself by mm -hmm. experimenting on himself um the problem really is that apart from emma none of the secondary mutations ever were particularly good like chuck austin gives angel healing blood and that storyline sucks uh like there's just not that many examples of it being used well mm. and i think that's why it kind of died off as a concept i liked the idea that mutants continue to evolve as they age i think that mm. was a cool idea and specifically the idea that the x gene spontaneously protected emma by yes. developing this new mutation at the moment of cataclysm like yeah. i think that's really cool um, but yeah, it's never really been well used. And the mother vine stuff fucking sucks. Uh, more recently, none to, I'm, I'm sorry if you're listening and you wrote on mother vine. I just I don't like that stuff at all. It, I mean, like you know, there's been other examples though. Like Fabian Niciesa in uh, X Men Forever in 2001 finally gave Toad a long tongue because he had one in the movie and it was cool. Mm -hmm. And it was like, why has Toad not had a long tongue this whole time? But that's the only other one I can think of that I particularly like. Yeah. I honestly feel like I agree. Like yeah. if beast turning into a cat does not fully count, then there's not a single other one. Yeah. Well, I guess it's like, similarly, if you want to say that like Hickman letting Monet take the penance form as like an alt mode, mm -hmm. if that's a secondary mutation, then that one's fucking awesome. Like that rules. So I'd say I love that one, but that also is very Emma, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's giving Monet this alternate form. That's visually cool. That distinguishes her from other telepath characters Absolutely. and from like rogue, because otherwise she's just sort of a flying brick and like the Supergirl kind of mode. Right. Yes. Um, not to say that Monet is just anything, because Monet is everything, honey, <laughs> darling, perfection. It's gonna be very. But this sad. is a Monet podcast. She's not in this story, so we'll just move on. Well, actually, she actually she's not in these issues, but she's about to be in the Channel Tunnel when Darkstar gets possessed by the Brainworms by Weapon Plus. So I guess she is in New X Men briefly. <sighs> and the reason Darkstar dies is because Morrison was going to kill Monet because Morrison didn't know who any of these characters from the '90s were and just sort of like picked names out of a hat. And the editor was like, "You cannot kill Monet. <laughs> <laughs> you, you could kill one of these other. Kill the Russian girl. We haven't used her in like 20 years." Um, but anyway, I digress. I'm sorry. What was the next, what was the, was there more to the question? No, it was no, the second question. Okay, cool. Um, Lex, do you want to read the question from Steve Pence? Absolutely, I can. All right. So from Steve, what did Magneto slash, is it, Z how do you Zorn? say? Zorn? Zorn. Okay. So I read it. So, um, I've always wondered why he said that a man with a star for a head was a dead giveaway. Am I missing something? From Steve. Ah, so this is referring to the reveal where, um, again, like if if you haven't finished, I, I feel I bad. You know, okay, yeah. Lexi, do you know mm -mm. the secret of Zorn? Nope. Can you just like cover just your ears for a moment? Because <laughs> I want you to read the rest of this. I really do. It is very good. You should take your. It's really up good. Second. Just take your headphones off for a second. Okay, so this is from the moment when Zorn reveals that he's Magneto. And the, and she just held up the headphones, cheating. <laughs> so he, and uh, he says, a man in an iron prison, a star for a brain. I kept thinking it was too obvious, but still you missed it. 
There was no Feng Tu mutant prison in China, Charles. I assembled it especially for the occasion. Zorn, have you any idea how much I've hated this pretense? His simpering homilies, his Zen diaries, his sickening New Age passivity. How long I've waited to do this? And then he breaks Charles's spine again. Um, This is one of my favorite pages ever in like an X-Men comic. Lots of people fucking hate it. Hate (laughs) it. This is the most controversial thing Morrison did besides breaking up Scott and Jean, which all the jarbs were furious about. But um, the fact of this new character that everyone likes has been working against them the whole time and it's Magneto and now all of the shit is really about to go crazy. So the line that you're asking about is a man in an iron prison, a star for a brain. I've thought about this a lot, actually, as it happens. A man in an iron prison is obvious, right? He's saying like, yeah, I made a prison out of iron because I'm fucking Magneto, you dumb fuck. It was a trap. But the star for a brain line, you can read a couple different ways, I think. One is just that, like, that's ridiculous, Charles. Like, you didn't look into that. You were just like, sure, his brain's a star. That's a normal mutant power to have. But, and this is something I, I'm not sure about this because I do think that, so the thing about Planet X that's that's difficult for some people, and Spencer Ackerman and I had a long conversation about this on the Magneto episode, is that like if Magneto is really valuable to you as a Jewish character and as a Holocaust survivor, the things he does in Planet X are really disgusting to read. And I'm Jewish, and he is important to me as a Jewish character and as a Holocaust survivor. I think that the point of that is to demonstrate that Sublime has pushed Magneto to do things he never would have done if he wasn't being pushed by kick by this other stuff in the, in the environment of the environmental storytelling. Right. Um, That said, I do read this line. If it's deeper than just come on, Charles, that was a ridiculous thing for me to say as a man in an iron prison with a star referencing Magneto's time in Auschwitz. Um, so yeah, your mileage may vary that may like Occam's razor is just, he's saying that's preposterous, but I want to read it that way. Uh, and I'd have to ask Grant if that's what they meant, but here's the thing it's in the text, whether or not it's what Grant meant. Mm-hmm. So that's the beautiful thing about art. And the thing that Grant I'm sure would tell you is it doesn't matter if I intended it. Right. So mm-hmm. that's the, uh, that's the thing. Oh, awesome. Yeah. I, I think I fall more into that second camp. Like okay. a star, a star on the mind reads very. A star for a brain. Yeah. yeah, yeah right. Yeah. And specifically like a man with a star in prison. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. Alexis, we did save you one of the best wig reveals of all time. Yeah. I like, just don't want to spoil it for you. It, Cause it's so good. It hit so hard for me. The first time I read this, I was aghast. I, I read it in real time just sitting in my parents basement (laughs) omnibus in hand jaw on the floor it was a floppy I bought it at like the (laughs) diner just melted your brain it was psychotic I was like what the fuck is going on and then if you and we couldn't go back I didn't have an omnibus but if you go back after that issue it is so well done it's Agatha Christie style shit like you just go wow this really was right here the whole time Oh, it's so good. It's so good. 
It's so good. I really, I know you don't always go back and read the whole thing if we just read a selection, Lex, but like, this run rules so hard. Just read these 35 issues or however many they are. It's yeah. fucking great. Just it's read them really one sitting. Great. It's fine. Um, all right. Shabbat Sean asks, I definitely need to ask why Jean was sort of at her worst, but I never loved her more. Such a serve. So why do we feel like this messy Jean resonates more because that's when she's human and interesting Mm -hmm. like that's what makes the character to me compelling is when we say this is a woman who became a god and she's kind of a fucking bitch like what is her deal like try to dig into her psychology and let her be messy let her be flawed i think Mm -hmm. that where characters who are that powerful become boring is where they aren't allowed to be anything other than a noble powerful hero and i think that the best treatments of characters like superman for instance are ones that really dig into the flaws in superman the things that make his life difficult, the choices that he makes that are maybe not easy. You know, like I think that with Gene, if you are going to have a character become omnipotent, then she has to be tragically human in a way that is like the way that she blows up all of her personal relationships over the course of this is astounding to read. Like people and here, I will say people get really harsh on Scott and Emma in this arc, but Gene kisses Logan first. Mm-hmm. People forget that because they skip the Ethan Van Skyver issues between Eos for Extinction and Imperial. But if you read Germ Free Generation, that arc in the middle with the U-Men, Gene absolutely cheats first, which I think people forget. And I love that because she's like, my husband sucks. And he's not attending to my needs. And yet she knows he's just been through this big trauma. So she doesn't want to be like insensitive, but also like she just wants to get fucked. Yeah. And like, yeah, girl, me too. Like I get it, you know, (laughs) but like, it's also just like the, the way that she uses the Phoenix, like to tear apart Emma's mind in the pettiest way out of personal desire for revenge. Like that, to me is a much more interesting character than a, 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 a great, great heroic woman using the Phoenix for some other pursuit. Like I like the characters who, I mean, again, like my favorite X-Men are Betsy and Emma. I like characters who get in the fucking muck and, you know, are sometimes ashamed of that, but do it anyway. Mm-hmm. And this is a story where Jean, from a very lofty position with the, the idea that she's disinfecting all the muck, uh, gets down and, and dirty and gritty in a way that the character is often put on a pedestal and not allowed to be. Absolutely. Uh, Lexi and Anne, what do you think of messy Jean Grey? You go first, Anne. <laughs> I was just... Yeah, perfectly agree with what Connor said, because it's just, I like it when powerful characters are allowed to be human. We talked 
we talk about it a couple times that interview we had with Kelly Thompson, where one of her biggest regrets working on Captain Marvel right now is the fact that in the aftermath of Civil War II, she has to play her completely perfect because public reception of her is so bad right now that right. she can't play with that at all. She's like, I have to, she has to be good at all times or else the internet's going to cancel her. Cause that's because she was so evil in that yeah. one storyline. <laughs> like, so that's like the place we are right now. And it's like, the Captain Marvel book right now is a really, really fun superhero comic, but it hasn't delved as deeply into Carol's um, character and her psyche as mm-hmm. I would like to, as some of the other runs have done. So it's a character where you don't have to play it safe. I like that that happens with Jean here. She still gets those really powerful moments, but she's not flat out born. She's not here just to say like, oh, I'm here to kick some ass and take names. She also has her own demon she's working with she also has her own messy moments and that's just good to see it's just it keeps things fresh so well that's part of why i love what teeny's been doing with betsy in the last couple years is because like this is betsy is being given everything she ever wanted she has wanted to be captain britain since 1976 like that Mm -hmm. is what she wants but she is also despite now having it 100 percent in her flop era in a way that i think is really funny yeah like the the 26 issues of excalibur and this is a captain britain tradition because brian takes l after l after l after l in excalibur and in captain britain before but the fact that it's like here's betsy making really bad choices a lot of the time is mm. to me more interesting to read i like when my favorite characters make mistakes or when they are petty or when they are weak in the way that people are in the way that I am sometimes, you know? And um, I think that this book also is what made me love Scott again. And I, as like a Madeline Pryor fan, Scott's not my favorite person. Um, But this book made me understand him in a way that the 90s material in particular had just tried to play him as like captain america and i was like no scott's an asshole like scott is, and at core i don't think he's an asshole but you get what i mean like yeah uh-huh. he needs to be he's not steve rogers and there was an attempt in the 90s to sort of play him as like the boy scout hero to contrast wolverine and gambit who were cool and just none of it worked for me and the scott here who's like kind of a fucking dick and like a bad husband is to me much more compelling. I think one of the boldest things to go to what you were saying about Captain Marvel in the wake of civil war two, one of the boldest things Louise Simonson does in X factor in the eighties is the whole point of the gene wasn't Phoenix retcon is to absolve gene right of Mm -hmm. the crimes of dark Phoenix and make her now a character who can be uncomplicatedly heroic, except Louise Simonson writes her as an absolute fucking bitch for like years and to me it's some of the most interesting gene material because let jean gray be a fucking bitch like the universe has been really unkind to her in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. you know like let her be immature sometimes let her resent her boyfriend's wife for no good reason really i mean she later gets a better reason but you know, let her see that when she was dead, uh, supposedly, her boyfriend married a woman who looks just like her and let her be pissed about that because it would be normal to be pissed about that. Yeah. I just think that that's a more interesting direction to take any character. And I think that female characters in particular are rarely afforded mm-hmm. it because there is an idea that the majority male perceived readership will react poorly to a difficult female character. Mm -hmm. And so 
it's just rare and lovely to get a book like this where two female characters are at the center of the narrative and are both really flawed three-dimensional people. Absolutely. Uh, Lex, what did you like seeing Jean get to be messy in that way we're talking about? Well, she about? hasn't seen most of it is the thing. She's got to keep true. reading. I don't really have much to compare to. Cause well, but also like you, the, you, this is the beginning, baby. Like the you men moment is where it starts to pivot, and then it's just like ah, Jean's becoming one with the Phoenix now. Shit's about to get real weird, and it just gets real, real weird for like twenty issues steadily. If you liked that moment of, she's got to read Murder at the Mansion. She's yeah. got to read Murder at the Mansion. Send her those. Send her the the reading list. <laughs> I will. It's two issues, Lexi. I'm not. It's not gonna. It's not gonna. <laughs> Getting a of homework from this one episode. <laughs> two issues. You can do it. Uh. Um, that's Grant, though. Once you get into like, I mean, I'm going to make you read Seven Soldiers, and you're going to, you're, you're, you're locked in yeah. now. Connor's going to be in your DMs after this. Right? I'm going to be like, have you read <laughs> no. Seven Soldiers of Victory yet? If you ever need a break from the X Men, you can come talk Seven Soldiers with us. I'm just saying. I would love to talk Seven Soldiers with you. That's my favorite DC comic of all time. We'll talk. Go on. All right. We'll talk. I know the, the the face that Anne just made is fascinating to me. I'd love to know more about that reaction. Yeah, I haven't I haven't finished Seven Soldiers yet, so I'm interested. Uh, okay, my second favorite is Gotham Central because this is that was it was the period where Gotham I was Central. really pissed about the decimation. So I tried to get into DC, and those comics were coming out, and they were both so fucking good. How um, do you feel about Fifty Two? I love Fifty Two. Me too. See, Alexa Fifty Two is one of the <laughs> finest. Uh, as a, as stunt comics go, the fact that they got that shit out weekly and it's so fucking good. It's insane. Is crazy. I mean, the steel plot is whatever, in my opinion. But mm. the other plots are all so good. And even the steel plot has a couple moments where I really got knocked on my ass. Like the part <laughs> where you the, the cannibalism reveal. Holy God, that was so good. <laughs> it's bananas. There are moments from 52 that I catch myself thinking about on a regular basis. Constantly. Like, I think about Renee Montoya's Rack in 52 all the time. It made, it cemented Renee Montoya as my favorite DC character, period. And then I left DC forever with New 52. I've never gone back because I was like, you... It's a safe decision. Can't do that yeah. to me. You can't take, you can't give me this character and then take her away. I refuse. I simply refuse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She's in a great place right now. Yeah, now she she's... is now. And I, I went back and read Greg's thing with Lois and everything. Like I, but I was. See, that was before they took that away. She's now the commissioner of the yeah, JCPD. They, they I don't like that though. Again. No, no one does. It's bad. That sucks. She quit being a cop so her... she could be commissioner. She quit being a cop. Like, oh, but, but, oh, God. It makes the whole no point. sense. The whole point of Gotham Central is that it's Renee Montoya's journey to realizing that policing is inherently corrupt. That's yep. the whole book. <laughs> DC's cool. like, that's cute. Anyways. Um, well, listen, boss, if anybody huh? at DC is listening, I'm sure you're doing great work. I haven't read it. I haven't read it. I've only been reading Catwoman because Teeny's writing Catwoman. But, I, but I'm sure it's fantastic and I'll, I'll read it before I judge it. But on the surface, the idea of Renee not just a cop again, but like leading the GCPC is very wrong to me. But I have very intense Renee Montoya opinions. So don't worry. That's, this is not a Renee Montoya episode, so I'm going to shut up. Oh, it's good. Um, for the sake of time, I think Glenn asked really great questions that cover a mm -hmm. lot of the other questions. Do we want to yeah. do his four questions and then call it? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. Okay. So, uh, 
Glenn Machette, Connor, one of our running bits, Glenn writes in every week, and he always writes really great questions. So he has his own theme song. So <laughs> I love that. Ba-da-da-da-da-da. It's Glenn. I love that for Glenn. Glenn is Glenn, the best. Glenn is our mascot at this point. He is our number one supporter. Um, to me, my collective number one. Morrison said in an interview that their take on X Men was based on the fact that they believed in the core original concept behind the franchise had never actually never been done. I always found this interesting and wanted to hear thoughts from you guys. If you agree, if Morrison did do that, I'm sorry I couldn't find the exact quote. Do we feel like well, Morrison's hitting the core concept of X Men in a way? That without the it? exact quote, it's a little hard to assess exactly what you mean. Mm-hmm. I, I'm thinking of a quote that was like about specifically the ES for extinction idea that like if this is the next step in human evolution, what happens when? the previous step starts to die out. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I think they nailed complete. I mean, yeah. Cause the way that the humans react to that is violent in exactly the right way. Um, <laughs> but also if you mean the core concept of it being a school or of mutants being a real culture, then yeah, I think Morrison did that in a way that Claremont never managed, despite my great love for the Claremont stories. So that, I mean, the greatest innovation, I think, of the Morrison period is the way that mutant kind actually feels like a real minority group with a culture and a community in a way that it never had before outside of individual groups like the Morlocks. Yeah, I think... For me, the time that the mutant metaphor has worked the best is in New X-Men. Yeah, well, I, I like God Loves Man Kill really impacted me as like a 16 year old reading that. I was hugely like, important comic, but it doesn't work as well yeah. politically as this stuff does. Yeah, I, I feel like when I return to that, I go, you were very important to me at one point, but I need to yes and you a lot. Whereas. Yeah, well, I don't think this run exists without God Loves Man mm-hmm. Kills. Yeah. You know, but. This is just the first time that mutants felt like a real group to me Yeah, that got to exist in the world and impact the world in a meaningful way. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of the most magical bits of the new X-Men for me. I agree. Awesome. I have nothing further to add on that. Lexi, do you have anything to add to that? No, but his next question makes me giggle. Do you, you want to read, read it, it then? I do slightly <laughs> want to read it. All right. Number two from my BFF Glenn says, X-Men originally was created to be a bit of a take on the Doom Patrol, much to Lexi's tears. Morrison, of course, has written both. Do you see any similarities in how they approached both these books? Um, So that's actually a misconception. X-Men and Doom Patrol were developed at the same time. They just happened to be similar concepts that were developed in parallel, which just happens sometimes in pop culture. Um, unless you believe that Stanley actively like snuck into the DC offices and stole the notes for Doom Patrol, which some people who have really negative opinions of Stanley have argued this. I think that's a bit silly. Uh, but yes, they both have a mentor in a wheelchair and they are both about characters that are marked as different because of a mutation and are sort of similar in tone. Um, I think that the way Morrison approached the two books 
is actually very different. Uh, the Doom Patrol that Morrison writes is almost a complete reimagining ground up of the concept and is most identified with like the new characters that they created, like Crazy Jane. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas New X-Men is a reimagining, but it's getting into the core of the 60s stuff that Morrison likes. So like, who is Charles Xavier? Who is Jean Grey? Who is Scott Summers? That's the core of New X-Men in a way that Doom Patrol to me felt like it was kind of doing something entirely new with just the building blocks of 60s Doom Patrol. Um, But I'm also like outside of Morrison's Doom Patrol and Pollock's Doom Patrol, not a Doom Patrol expert. So I can't really get too much deeper than that. I feel like for me, Morrison's Doom Patrol felt really focused on like the body and accepting Mm -hmm. your body, accepting like the external bits of yourself along with the internal, where I feel like new X-Men to me feels a lot more internal that like, it's about the mind. Yeah. It's about coming an obsession with telepathy and the mind throughout. uh, And the white Phoenix of the crown activates in your chakra, like it up top, like it's, there's, it's an enlightenment thing. Whereas I agree, like Doom Patrol is very about physicality. And I, and so I think it's, it's two sides of the same coin talking, talking about feeling like you're not quite one with the world, but finding a way to feel at one with yourself. But I, I think it's approaching it from the two opposite ends towards a similar mm-hmm. goal. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, do you have any thoughts, Anne or Lexi? I like the X-Men much more than Doom Patrol at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Um, yeah, no, that's about it. It's summed it up perfectly. So uh, what can I say? Gosh. Yeah. <laughs> you and Connor are doing all the work the for this one and it's perfect. I just never shut up. Like your listeners who don't listen to my show are like, who the fuck is this guy? Put a sock in it. <laughs> it's just, you're so knowledgeable about it. And I appreciate that so much. It's fantastic. Thank you. Um, the next question from Glenn is this run is where I believe Emma flipped from evil to good. Why do you think now was the time? Yeah, it's just not correct. She, uh, flipped from evil to good in the early nineties after, uh, the Hellions were murdered by Trevor Fitzroy. And then she was the headmistress at Gen X for most of the nineties. Um, this is when she became a member of the X-Men. And as for like why it was time for that, Generation X had just been canceled and Grant Morrison wasn't allowed to use Storm, Rogue, Psylocke, or Shadowcat. So if you're picking another female character to have, it was actually a fan suggested, like, because they were upset that Gen X had been canceled. Are you going to do anything with Banshee or Emma Frost? And Grant didn't even know that Emma Frost had become good. So they went and like read some Gen X and was like, I could do something with this. Again, it's like all so crazy how quickly this all happened. Do you feel like, because you mentioned earlier that Emma's turn to good during the 90s, it didn't have the impact that this did. Right. So do you think there was something in either Morrison's approach or in the timing of it that made this really stick and catapult Emma towards being a good guy in people's mind? Yeah, I think that he made her lovable in her complexity like he didn't make her nice but at least for me and i know that the jarbs may disagree that's the gene barbs if you're not (laughs) familiar with my 
terminology. Um, I think that it is like when you read New X Men One Thirty Nine and Jean rips her way through Emma's head, exposes all of her deepest traumas, and leaves her broken and crying in Wolverine's arms. Like it's impossible not to love that character after that. For me, anyway. Um, and and not to be disgusted with Jean, actually, like it, which I think is interesting. It's like the way they're presented initially versus the way that you come to understand them by the end. And it's not to say that like I don't think you should stay disgusted with Jean forever. I think Jean realizes that she fucked up, and that's why she brings Emma back at the end of that arc. But like, there's just something really. It was in making her a mirror for Jean in a way that she just hadn't really been before outside of the original Dark Phoenix storyline that they're in and um, making her in some ways the moral conscience of the team, which is funny, right? Like, cause she's the least moral of them, mm-hmm. but she is the one most concerned with people outside the Xavier bubble. Yeah, I would agree. Um, and was there like a turning point for you where Emma, you got Emma Frost because you mentioned listening I, to Connor's episode, but well, other than just changing my perspective on it, I think it was the moment where she, like I said, the when she makes the the reference to Damascus, the road to Damascus, and she's like, you know what, I'm turning around right now. This is, mm-hmm. I think that was like Emma's not like come to God moment in like the way it's like, oh, I'm a perfect saint now, but that's the moment where she picked a side, and she's yeah. like, I'm gonna make a stand right here. She can't get away with this. I'm not going to let her get away with this. I'm I'm turning around. This is too easy to just leave. Well, and not and not just that, but like Xavier's school needs my perspective. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to let them direct our people without my input. I can't leave just because mm-hmm. they're rude to me. I yeah. have to stay. She takes a big responsibility. Yeah, and she keeps it. I mean, like for the next 10 years of X-Men come 15 for a long time mm-hmm. up until honestly, until Inhumans humans versus X-Men, which we are not going to talk about. <laughs> um, Emma is the leader of the mutant race in some ways more than Scott is. And I think that that is because of the character work that Grant does here. I would agree. Um, Lex. I, mm-hmm. I know that Emma is a character that you like a lot. So maybe morphing Glenn's question a little bit, what are the things that make Emma Frost a hero to you? Um, I feel like just from a very young age, I mean, I grew up watching those movies over the back of the couch when you and dad watched them. And I just remember- Wait, 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 wait. Are you guys- we're siblings. We're siblings. Yeah. Me and Alexis I don't siblings. listen to this show. I didn't <laughs> know that. my older brother. <laughs> Oh, that's yeah, that is, that's so much cuter. That is now. my little yeah. sister. No, I just oh, found I out where that. he lived. Just shut up. No, but I'm sorry. I'm just listen. I'm learning the lore. It's that's, like dropping okay. in and mm-hmm. not. It's like reading Final Crisis and not knowing what's going <laughs> yeah. on, and then you go back. I'm gonna re-listen back now to the whole episode. And be like, oh, oh this girl's that's, not just creepy. That's okay. what she meant by Cassandra Nova. Ah. No, now I'm yeah. like that makes. I thought that was just like a joke about evil twins or whatever, but no, like literal siblings. No, that's really funny. Siblings. Yep. Love that. It's very exciting. I'm sorry. Keep going. No, I didn't mean to cut you off. Okay. I, just, I was like, <gasps> you're like, what? Twist. 
yeah. That's no. very X Men to suddenly realize the two characters are siblings. Yeah, so I mean, in the new X Men episode, nonetheless, we realize mm-hmm. we're siblings yeah, 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 yeah. most of the we way through. <laughs> right, love it. Yeah, but I feel like yeah, watching those movies over the back of the couch. Um, I think it's specifically First Class. Is that the one that I'm thinking of? That's the one where oh. January Jones does her. Very best with a very <laughs> underwritten character. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that that one. Um, and I just remember being fascinated by her. Like, I thought that she was the hottest female I have ever seen. And I was like, I <laughs> want to be you when I grow up. And I didn't really even process that she was a villain. She's never been a villain right. in my head. Yeah. She's just... She's hey, just serving, babe. She's just yes. self-serving. That's what she's doing. Well, yeah. She yeah. is the queen of just hmm, how can I make the most out of this situation? And I feel like that kind of just bled into everything. Like I have never, and I know because I haven't read a bunch, but I've never viewed her as a villain. I'm like, I like Mm -hmm. you because you remind me of some, like she was the character that was allowed to be kind of, but like she was outspoken she was sassy she was kind of mean like she said whatever the hell she wanted to and i felt very seen by that because i was that child growing up ask anybody i have a mouth and i will tell you if you're bothering me and i just i don't know i felt very seen by her and so i have always really really loved emma i know you really loved uh jerry duggan's marauders with emma Mm -hmm. do you feel like one of the best emmas for sure Mm -hmm. jerry writes a killer emma i agree um how do you feel like the the emmas compare lex now that you've read morrison's do you feel like is a good through line for the characters yeah i feel like they're both really great i feel like morrison's is definitely more campy like she is for sure yeah (laughs) oh she is a level a thousand. Morrison writes her as a drag character. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. She is full drag. And I feel like the Marauder Marauders um, run, she is very much stepped into the role of like, okay, yes. Like, I am taking on so much more as a, like, I feel like she's taking on so much more as a character and like more of a leadership role within what she is. And so I feel like they're very similar, but do change a little bit in that like i feel like with this run specifically like yes she's a teacher but she's still kind of a little shit like she just loves mm-hmm. to mess with everybody but i feel like in marauders at least the bit that i've read because i still haven't i'm not 100 percent up to date on that one but um she's a little less so that she's more mature she's yeah like grown she's grown up person. you can tell yeah and she's grown um, into her x-men Role. Dallas, you gotta get her the Devil's Reign mini that Jerry did. That is like my that's my favorite new like if people just like Emma Frost, here's three issues, Devil's mm-hmm. Reign X-Men. Just like pick it up. It's an Emma Frost solo mini series that they just sold as a tie-in, which I think is delightful. Love that. Like I love I love when it's like we're doing an event tie-in, but it's actually gonna be whatever the hell I want. It's like the if you haven't read the beta ray bill mini. That's exactly mm-hmm. what they did, where they were like, yeah. it's vaguely connected to whatever Spider-Man's gooey underpants are up to. Right. Anyway. And there's like some, uh, yet another alien space event is happening, but here's what Beta Ray Bill's up to. <laughs> he was very sad in the window about it. Yeah. I I yeah. also loved that Emma mini. I will I'll send it to Alexis. Yeah. Um, so the last Glenn question just disappeared off my phone. 
I have it. Um, oh, it's on the. I'll. I can read oh, it. Go for it. On the subject of Emma, I think the X-Men and their villains have had a long history of flipping from good to evil or whatever. Why do you guys think this is prevalent in X-Men more than perhaps any other comic franchise? I feel like because they're all fun to play with. They're so fun. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a soap opera. And so I'm evil now is a soap opera plot or the bad guy's good now. That's, I mean, General Hospital. Mm -hmm. Google it, Luke and Laura, if you want to know more. (laughs) Um trigger warning but anyway so the the point is like the other thing there though is what unites the x-men and their villains most of the time and why this era is working in my opinion so well is that apart from the bigots who hate mutants who they fight like the right or the purifiers or whatever most X-Men villains are people from the same minority group as the X-Men who have a different political point of view. And that is the kind of person that you can have a conversation with, hopefully, and that you want to think you can find common ground with. So it makes a lot of sense that the X-Men look at someone like Magneto or at someone like Emma Frost and think, we're not really so different. I just don't agree with your methods or I don't agree with your philosophy. And then by having those characters meet somewhere in the middle and have a dialogue, it becomes more interesting. So it's just a natural thing to do. It's also what... um, Tony Oliveira once on my show called like the capaciousness of liberalism, which is like Xavierism as a centrist philosophy is very concerned with defanging radicalism by bringing people into its big tent. Right. So like if Magneto is an Emma Frost now work with Charles, Mm -hmm. then their more extreme impulses are going to be, dialed back and that's good for the Xavierist project I agree I think that was super solid mm-hmm. yeah uh, honestly perfect so <laughs> I feel like I, I do talk about this so <laughs> it's almost like you do this every week. it's almost like I do it every week for like three hours yeah I think my much stupider answer is I just think they're wonderful you know like Celine walks out as yeah. this giant yeah. vampire lady, I want her in every single story. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the reality is when they're a villain, they don't get to be there as often. As if right. you make them a part of the team, then yes. I can have the scary goth vampire lady there camping it up the entire time. Yeah, no, I am desperately hoping that like Immortal X-Men 12 ends with her taking Essex's seat on the council because <sighs> all I want is for Celine to just hang out. Well, all I really want is to write the Celine solo series, but I can't imagine the Celine solo series ever being approved (laughs) because who would buy that besides like me and the girlies? You know what I mean? But like, I can't, you know, but God, but that's exactly right. Is it's much more fun to have a character like Celine or like Mr. Sinister or like Magneto or like Emma around. And so if you can find a way narratively to make it make sense for them to sit at the bar with the heroes and have a conversation then it's worth doing because it's mm-hmm. fun. Yeah. Any chance we get to have bad leather vampire lady hang around, I'm okay with. You know, it's, I'm sure. chill, you know? I mean, well. there's there's also just like a higher concentration of great villains here. Because yeah, ultimately, they have, it's 
Batman does this too, actually. Yeah, yeah. Because they want the characters to hang out. And so like almost every, apart from like the Joker, like almost every iconic Batman villain has at least had like an anti-hero phase. Like they did it with the Riddler at one point, didn't they? Like, mm-hmm. I just feel like that happens a lot in Batman also. And in Spider-Man, actually, look at Venom. Because in those franchises where you have a really strong rogues gallery, you want to write more stories with them. Mm-hmm. It's why the Flash's rogues eventually just became his friends. I mean, it's... It is solid. And I mean, even just on the Marvel side, you look at Dr. Doom. Dr. Doom is never that evil. No, because you need, I mean, in the sense that he's an authoritarian dictator, he's pretty evil. But also, he's funny. Let's have coffee with Dr. Doom and talk politics or whatever. Like, you know, because we want to have Dr. Doom around because he's fun. He's about to eat everybody up at the Hellfire Gala. Oh, it's a great design. I love it. Didn't wasn't the last time we saw Ultron? Wasn't he wearing like a kiss the chef chef apron or something? Because he's mixed with Hank Pym right now. I Ultron. swear. To well, God, Ultron's always mixed with Hank Pym. Is he, are they like super? They're, are they like physically mixed together? Like, oh, gross! I mean, I this is <laughs> when I say this is not an Avengers podcast. Like this is not an Avengers brain. Like I just don't. I do not retain <laughs> Avengers based information from any time after like Roger Stern. Like it's just. It's just. It, vanishes from my brain very quickly but that is disturbing and uh how's jocasta is she okay <laughs> good question um they made her like fleshy for a while didn't they she, she was like getting so. flesh parts that was a to while make, ago to make hank want to fuck her wasn't that it <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me i haven't seen her since avengers academy i so love in the last 10 years so I, I would hope that jocasta is around doing something fun actually she was probably she was probably a part of avengers ai whenever that was going on but I just want to, like, I'm waiting for the homo novissima problem to, like, interact with Vision and Yakasta and all of those characters. Like, do they count? Mm-hmm. Are they a problem for Krakoa? Like, I don't know. They let Vision on Krakoa, so probably not. Yeah. But, because uh, he's not an anti-mutant AI specific. Anyway, I'm sorry, we're getting <laughs> off track. But No, no, you just got um, me thinking about how they're going to res- resurrect Danger if anything happens to her. They did. They, they did? did. They did. Wait, what they, they, she just she just showed up oh, in last week's issue of Wolverine. 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 I wouldn't know. Okay, cool. I have to tell you, Ben Percy's Wolverine is the first solo Wolverine I have ever subscribed to. See, I, think I it keep is really that. great. I tried reading through like the first six or seven issues, See, and it no, just didn't click. Start start after Ten of Swords because I really after, do think okay. like start with whatever issue it is. I don't remember what the number is, but whichever issue is right after Ten of Swords ends. Just pick it up from there. I okay. think that it starts really, really just like firing on all cylinders, and it has been so good ever since. Good. I will. I will give it that. I'll give that a look. Ben's books are a little slow to start because he's a novelist, and so he mm-hmm. spends a lot of time kind of setting pieces up. But then, like X Force, right now, X Force took me a little while to get into because I'm also just like not an X Force person. But the last like ten issues of X Force, killer. Like he's really he's really doing the damn thing these days. That is. Um, that is the end of our question section, everyone. Um, I made you go an hour over your usual runtime. It, it feels right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I do this to every show that I guest on, though. It makes me feel bad. <laughs> it's good content. It's good content. Thank you so much. The people yes, will be added four voices. My God. All right. You're going to no. be astonished at how much more lax I am 
you'll be oh like, well yeah if you don't care that much about the edit then it's fine not to suggest like you don't care about your show i just mean like i i'm very like anal retentive obsessive compulsive about my edit so the, you know i fully i will balance all of us and i will cut out that part that we said we should cut where we made where and, i read the wrong thing yeah yeah that will be cut that was my fault listeners and then that's it they're not even that's show business happened. No, they're not going to know what happened because it's literally just that Surprise. I read the wrong email. They'll be, <laughs> they'll be here listening to this. Be like, and everyone was like, that. "That's not well, like, the right email." And I'm like, "Oh, and um, well, let me read the right one. Which one's the right one?" Yeah. Um, Lex uh, or Anne, do you have any final thoughts about New X Men before we go? I do not. I think we've said just about all we can say. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. Read it if you haven't. Exactly. Yeah, if you, you haven't have read not it again. this yet. Read it. <laughs> Wonderful. You and you, Lex? Um, I don't know. I just feel like I loved there's a few things that I loved. I loved all the characters. I love being able to watch them throughout. I love being able to see more of the school and it actually becoming a school. Um, I thought that Cassandra was a really interesting villain, and I think that she was scary as shit, and I never want to see her again. But <laughs> you should uh, you should read the new. You should get through the end of Jerry's Marauders, and then pick up Steve Orlando's new volume of Marauders because boy howdy is Cassandra back. No, That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Spoke too soon, but no, I I really enjoyed it. I it was funny because I commented to my boyfriend when I very first started. I go. My brother's making me read another book by that, by the, um, the Doom Patrol person. Yeah, but I was like, by the writer that I don't really like that much. And he was like, oh, so are you going to actually read it? And I was like, mm, I don't know yet. <laughs> and he was like, and then, and then I did, I did, I did read it. I promise. promise Proud I of you. But, Glad you did. Yeah. And I, it, it took me by surprise. It was a good, it was a good grant, as I do say. Good grant. Look at the size <laughs> of this W. Yep. I'm very pleased with it. Do you like Superman, Lexi? I do. I do enjoy Superman. You should try All-Star Superman. I I think that's the most accessible Grant Moore. Oh, okay. If you haven't read it. Yeah. yeah, I was like. Dallas got me with that one already. (laughs) I got her with Klaus, too. That was a sneaky one. I do love Klaus. You like more Grant than you think you do. Yeah, I do. I just am trying to hold on to my bit. That's a high batting average for Grant, honestly. (laughs) I'm just trying to hold on to the edge of my bit. Like, no! (laughs) They got you. You already got me with Batman. Can't say, like, don't like Batman anymore. (sighs) I gotta pick a new thing. I will die on the Doom Patrol, though. Don't like that one. (laughs) See, actually, it's funny. Grant's Batman, not my favorite Grant. Ooh, it hits me where I live. I love uh, Grant's I, Batman. Here's why. Here's why. Grant's one? Batman is really good. Grant's Batman is really good. I, as, and this is the most on-brand thing you're going to laugh, as a Talia al Ghul fan. <laughs> yeah, I laughed. I find Grant Morrison's take on Talia al Ghul to be really egregious character assassination. However, if you leave that out of the equation, really good comic. So here, Connor, I once got assassinated by the Talia stands on Twitter.com because that was my first Talia comic. And I said, I really like this. And they went, you absolute buffoon. You don't understand. And I was like, yeah, if you like Talia Al Ghul before that comic, it's a rough read is just what I'll say. I I learned something that day. 
Wow. Yeah, I bet you did because they're they're intense. They're a fierce. Like, all group. of the Batman fandom people are, but especially the Batman fans who are like specifically love one female villain. Shout I out. feel like they're very <laughs> like the Poison Ivy people. Like they're very intense. Love, you know, Anna's had her problems with the Poison Ivy people. <laughs> they love me. They love me so much. I can't win. Yeah, well, there can anyone people. writing Poison Ivy, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, Good luck. Uh, <laughs> uh, Connor, do you have any plugs you want to do before we roll into sure. our credits? You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find the podcast and everything related to the podcast at Cerebrocast.com. Uh, season three will launch in mid-May. The first four episodes are going... Oh, and Cerebro, by the way, if you don't know it, 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 every episode is about one X-Men character, and I trace their whole publication history, and I have a guest who loves the character, or at least loves talking about the character. Um, I've done 75 episodes. We just wrapped up season two with episode 75. Season three is going to start in a couple weeks. Um, And the first four episodes will be Kieran Gillen on Mr. Sinister, Steve Orlando and Nyla Rose on Thunderbird, Steph Williams on Dr. Cecilia Reyes and Al Ewing on Abigail Brand. So I'm very excited about season three. I have many more exciting episodes to share with you all, but I only share four at a time because otherwise my inbox just (laughs) becomes untenable. Um, But you can send questions for any of those guests about those characters to cerebrocast at gmail.com. Uh, and if you really love Cerebro, you can join the House of Zaladane at patreon.com slash Cerebrocast for $5 a month. Uh, you can get bonus episodes and fun stuff. Um, most recently, I did actually, after, there are 76 episodes now because I released one of the Patreon bonuses. Teeny Howard and I did a two and a half hour interview about Knights of X, about her current run on Catwoman, uh, and just generally about like being a comics pro and other stuff. She and I are really close, so it was just kind of us having fun but people really seem to like the episode so uh check that out if you're interested in catwoman or in knights of x slash excalibur um i think that's it uh if you want to look at my day job clients go to connorgoldsmith.com because uh, i'm a literary agent in my nine to five and i love them all they're all incredible i wouldn't represent them otherwise love it uh i love cerebro so it gets a gold stamp from the comics collective you should check it out well, thank you. And thank you three for having me and letting me talk your ears off yeah, for two no, and a half hours. Thank you so much. We really, really appreciate it. It's refreshing it awesome. to have someone intelligent on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Yeesh. She is your little she, sister. She is. Can't, Ooh, that's good. All of us at once. Just took all of that's us right. out. That's <laughs> great. Hey, I was in that category. I, was I know. <laughs> you said, I'm going down too, but I'm taking the shot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. I love that. That's all right. All right. All right, everybody, if you like this show and want to hear more from us throughout the week, please go follow our Twitter account at CMX Collective, or you can find each of us at our personal accounts at Dallas underscore comics, at Ann Comics, and at Lexi Lou underscore comics. If you enjoyed the show and want to show your support, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening and give us a five-star review. And finally, feel free to email us with your questions or comments for the show at thecomicscollective at gmail.com. And I'll try not to butcher your name. I promise. (laughs) No promises. (laughs) Um, All right. And we will see you guys next week for our episode with Karen Gillen, right? 
Yes. We are interviewing writer of Immortal X-Men, Eternals, Once and Future, the whole shebang, Kieran Gillen. And then we are going to be reading Hellions with oh. Eric Azana from the Geeksplain podcast as well. Love Hellions. That was episode 75 was me and Zeb talking about Hellions. So if, you, if your listeners like Hellions, they should check that out. Yeah. It was fun. Absolutely. Oh, I'm so excited. Prior time. Yeah, but well, that was the funniest thing is the episode's about Nanny and the Orphan Maker and someone texted me. They were like, I love that you've spent the first 45 minutes of this Nanny and the Orphan Maker episode talking about Madeline Pryor. I was like, what did you think I was going to do? <laughs> you knew exactly what you were signing up for. I love it so much. <laughs> Listen, okay. we all have our things. Alexis likes to be mean to us on the podcast yeah. and likes Carol Danvers. I mentioned Madeline Pryor in the Cypher episode before I mentioned Cypher and those characters have never met. It's Love perfect. That. It Same. was just, it was completely apropos of nothing. So I, I can't be tamed, but you know, what are you going to do? I, I feel, I feel like I talk about Grant Morrison in a way that's like the person who's only ever read Grant Morrison. You know, I'm yeah. getting some real Morrison every vibes episode. from this. Hey, some real Morrison vibes. Morrison really does one. show up in every single one of our episodes. Every They're moment. on my mind constantly. They are one of the most influential comic writers of the last 30 years. So yeah. like, you're not wrong True. a lot of the time, but you know. Dallas thinks about Morrison more than he thinks of his wife. So this is true this is a true statement i don't feel like that's true but <laughs> the allegations have been leveled i guess I'm you're not going to beat the allegations <laughs> mm. all right everybody thank you so much thank you again connor and we'll see you next week bye thanks for having bye. me bye